VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Tuesday, March the 7th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonce King is sitting in the producer's chair this morning. You'll be speaking with Fonce when you pick up the phone, give us a call, get in the queue, and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, as you heard Brian Medore mention in the VOCM News, mixed bag of weather in store for, for us here in the metro region today. Some light flurries this morning, turning the freezing rain and then off to rain. No big amounts in the forecast, but just enough to make a mess. Welcome home to the Week 2 participants at the Canada Winter Games. So the great video out there for the raucous applause that welcomed the athletes in particular home. And, of course, the designation to get off the flight last, of course, folks with the medals around their neck. Mike Gazan, the boxer, Maddox Glover, the skater, Lily Evans, and Mark Butt, also the pairs figure skating bronze medalist. So the video is really quite great. If you want to have a look for it, you'll put a big smile on your face. All right, the Canes Quest. So we spoke to one of the organizers of Canes Quest, of course, 3,500-kilometer snowmobile race in Labrador. There was a pause yesterday because of weather. They got back underway, but now again this morning they took to social media to put yet another pause in the activity. So the team's got to remain at the checkpoint wherever they are. And I guess upon further notice we'll see whether or not they can get going at some point today. But, you know, when one of the organizers yesterday, Chris, said that there was a, you know, a consensus. They go to all the checkpoints in the communities to gather information and get input from all hands to see whether or not they should be having the snowmobiles out there involved in the race. But... I guess safety first. Anyway, Briar update up in London, Ontario. Team Young still winless, 0-4, and, and they'll get their legs, we hope. And Team Guju, boy, I watched a bit of the game against Quebec, and they got off to a sluggish start, and I'm thinking they just don't have their stuff. In particular, third, Mark Nichols, one of the finest players in the world for a long time now. He was ninth amongst thirds, picked up his game yesterday. The boys racked up a couple of wins. They're now 4-1. and one. That's terrific. Team Young plays Alberta and the Northwest Territories today, and Guju gets wildcard number one, which is Alberta's Brendan Botcher, and they're simply tough. All right, I know when you look out the window and you see all the snow and the ice, it doesn't really bring baseball to mind. But, of course, spring training well underway in Florida and Arizona, and the Jays look really stout. They've got the offense. That's one thing for sure. And new rules in baseball. I mean, uh, you know me. I'm always up for a chat about sports, but I like the new rules. I see people complaining that it's taking away the vibe and the pace, especially with the implementation of a pitch clock. But sometimes for the lay sports fan who can't get into baseball because it's so slow, as they say, I don't find it that way, but... It's going to pick up. But here's an interesting one, this date in history. Then-commissioner of Major League Baseball in 1955 was a guy named Ford Frick. He spoke out in favor of uh, legalizing the spitball, the spitter. These days, they check the pitcher's hat and their hands and their gloves for anything that could be used to manipulate the baseball. But Ford Frick, all for the spitter. All right, we all know this promises history when it comes to the transatlantic cable and the radio transmissions that saw the first telephone calls. The first successful uninterrupted call was on this date in history in 1926. But it was in July of 1866 where Great Eastern, the vessel, sailed out of Valencia Island in Ireland, landed on the 26th of the same month at Heart's Content. You know the deal. So that line was actually active until 1965. From 1927 on, for a number of years, the transatlantic telephone service was radio-based, but the first successful uninterrupted call was this date between New York and London in 26. All right, let's go back to Europe. 
So this one kind of came out of nowhere for me, and I didn't know much about it. But so the province, as you've heard in the news, the Premier Minister Cody made their way to London to launch $1 billion worth of bonds to be sold on the London Stock Exchange. All right. They generally speak in very optimistic and bullish terms about the province's fiscal status. And the Premier Fury says we're in much better position, and maybe there's an opportunity to save some money in borrowing when we see these bonds being exchanged or sold, pardon me, on the London Stock Exchange. You know, people will worry about risk and the timing of. Fair enough. If there's a way to save and, you know, to risk, uh, mitigate our risks against hedging against Canadian currency, eh, we'll see. I'm not a high-level economist, so I'm not really sure. But I did call a couple of people yesterday who know much more about it than I do, and they think this is a smart move to diversify the portfolio. Now, remember, it costs over a billion dollars per year to service our debt, which is truly remarkable. We spend in and around the same dollar on education, and we can talk about education today. So, interestingly enough, and as they go further into the story, apparently up until yesterday, there was only two provinces in the country that did not have a European portfolio for their borrowing. So Alberta, B.C., they do indeed sell bonds on the London Stock Exchange. The other provinces sell bonds on the Luxembourg Stock Exchange. So I guess we're just catching up with the pack. And, of course, they have got to do everything possible to mitigate the risk. You know, a few years ago, negative interest rates in Europe, it might have been a good time to do it then. But here we are today. If you want to chime in on it, you can do it. The provincial debt is about $16 billion. And, you know, that's a whopping big number for a population of around 520,000 people. And again, a billion dollars plus to service our debt per year. Annual borrowing in and around $1.7 billion over the last number of years. So big numbers to consider there. And, of course, had to fly, if they went to London, had to go to either Halifax or Toronto to turn around fly right back over the province to get to London. And we know that they're looking for opening some direct routes to Europe, maybe one in the United States. Some people think that's a fool's errand. I think it's important, uh, and that's something we can talk about this morning. What is not factored in to our $16 billion net debt is Muskrat Falls. Because it's deemed to be a revenue uh, driver, a revenue asset. So it's not in the net debt, which, of course, it absolutely is part of the yoke around our collective necks when and, when and if it comes on stream in full. So Jennifer Williams, who is the CEO at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, she still sounds quite optimistic and bullish on the fate of the project, even though there's been yet another glitch on the Labrador Isla link that's been detected. So there's also maybe a software problem with the subsea cable. But this, you know, it's hard to find bullish or optimistic words surrounding Muskrat Falls. We all know the sanctioned dollar, about $7.4 billion. Here we are somewhere around $13 billion. We don't know what the final price tag will be. But yet another glitch. But Miss Williams says that she's optimistic that come April, they will have figured all this out and be able to flow the maximum capacity across the line. Right now, they're able to flow uh, 450 megawatts with no trip of the system. There was a 700-megawatt test scheduled, but when they identified this glitch, that had to be pushed into April. And if we don't get it done this winter during these cold winter months, it's going to be all the way maybe to next November before they finally test it with 700 megawatts. It has a, fir a firm capacity of 900 megawatts if everything works properly. So add that yet another setback to the ongoing concerns that soldiers pond with the synchronous condensers and all the rest of it. I don't know how optimistic others are, but they seem to be speaking in those terms with the most recent update, even though they've identified yet another bug or gremlin. 
in Labrador Island and the subsea cable. Anyway, and Miss Williams, of course, is one of three people involved with the 2041 negotiations with project, uh, the province of Quebec and Hydro-Quebec. She joins Carl Smith and Dennis Mahoney on that three-person team. And that kind of went off the radar very quickly. Premier Legault came to town. They had a very brief meeting. I guess they had a dinner photo opportunity at the rooms, and then the next day had a two-hour meeting. And all we know from that is that they agreed to continue negotiations. On what in particular? Who knows? Looking back uh, since 1969 and the amount of money that's flowed to the province of Quebec, around $30 billion, less than $3 billion to this province. The fact that about a third of the $4.6 billion profit in Hydro-Quebec was because of the Upper Churchill, and a lot of that money, of course, flows to the government of and the province of Quebec. So you want to take any of that on? We can do exactly that. But, you know, the basics of not even knowing what the questions are, looking back, renegotiating the remaining 18 years leading up to 2041, the implications of 2041, does it have anything to do with Muskrat, anything to do with Gull Island, anything to do with the so-called Atlantic Loop, and who would be the players and the partners therein? A lot to it, you want to talk about it. Let's go. All right. So, apparently this issue had been brewing for months regarding Smith's ambulance services and meeting their obligations out in, at Whitburn in particular. So, out of the blue, well, so say the employees of Smith's, out of the blue, the service was removed and replaced by uh, nearby private operations and Eastern Health. Okay, so for starters, for the employees to find out about this on Facebook is ludicrous, number one. And what exactly were the issues surrounding uh, Smith's services in Whitburn? We're not really sure. But it just adds another layer of anxiety and worry and frustration for folks in the, in the area. And Whitburn is not the only pro uh, part of the province impacted by the shortage in ambulance services. You know, there we talk about the issues and the complications in Whitburn, pardon me, in Bonavista, and making your way 90 minutes down the highway to Clarenville, or on the southwest coast. So when people are on the southern shore, another developing story, calling 911, knowing that there's an ambulance parked just minutes down the road, but maybe it's going to be dispatched from Holyrood or from St. John's, and so what you would hope would be a 20-minute response might turn into as much as 90 minutes. So inside the health accord, it's very clear talking about uh, merging all the different ambulance services into one provincial ambulance service. So if the health accord is the guideline, is the blueprint to whatever people want to call it, the transition of healthcare delivery in the province. So we've been talking about this issue for years on this show about the mismatch of private versus public ambulances, the differences and the difference of pressures on the ambulance operators and the paramedics. But if we're actively working on this file, push has got to arrive at shove very, very shortly here because communities are being negatively impacted. We're losing paramedics. So that whole ambulance issue, you know, add into it the fewers and the folks at the Teamsters Local 855. So there's a lot to that. And I, I read some comments coming from Deatra Walsh, and we're trying to reach out to her this morning to come on the program. She's at Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, talking about the fact that some communities will try to be creative and as municipal leaders try to do their very best for the residents of their town and be actively involved in recruiting doctors. I think it's really quite clear with other communities that don't have that kind of money saying, uh, she's coming out at 10 o'clock, Fonts? Okay, Deatra Walsh at 10, that's great. So other communities that might not be able to do what Bonavista's doing, with a cash incentive on top of any provincial government incentives, a service building lot for a dollar. So we do indeed see this rivalry between communities who should not necessarily be involved in trying to provide these types of essential services that are provincial responsibility. So I'm looking forward to hearing Mrs. Walsh 
Miss Walsh's comments or thoughts on that. And speaking of the health accord, you know, just like other benchmarks that have not been put in place to gauge success, whether it be recruiting registered nurses in India or doctors in Ireland, and if you read in the Irish Times, doctors in Ireland, when looking for a new home, by and large, are going to Australia. So, you know, not knowing if it's 100 nurses from India would be a success. We don't have any numbers, any benchmarks, any milestones to gauge whether or not we're on the right track. So where are we in the status of the Health Accord implementation? Where are we with some of the items that were uh, discussed in the Green Report, the Premier's economic recovery team, of course, led by Moya Green at the time? We've, never, we've seen that in full publicly released. We don't know anything about what's in the Rothschild Report. So what are all these status uh, conversations? I hear in the newscast this morning, you know, and some recommendations about potentially selling off parts or in full the Newfoundland Liquor Corporation. Another pretty solid quarter for them, over $55 million in revenues, some 54-ish gone to the province, a bit of a decrease of just about 3% to the prior quarter. But where are we in those conversations? I don't even think people fully understand exactly what selling the NLC means. And many people in the province think, why would we sell anything that generates the kind of revenues and a couple hundred million, couple hundred million dollars a year that go to the province? But of course, the province will always have tax on liquor, so it's not like we dry up all the revenue from NLC. So where are we with Bull Arm, Marble Mountain, the Department of Motor Vehicles? Where are we with the conversation regarding divesting our oil assets? We don't know. You know, and if these documents are going to be the guiding principles and the blueprints or the Bible of how we move forward in this province, it would be great to know if we've set any milestones, where we are in these conversations. We don't even know where we are in merging the four health authorities into one. We don't know where we are with the English-speaking school district being blended into the Department of Education. So the unknowns just lead our minds down worst-case scenario roads, don't they? So those few items, and there's a lot inside of that, we can tackle it if you're so inclined. How are we doing out there, Fonts? Let's get the phones going. All right, this is a disturbing story. The folks at the Social Justice Cooperative, and that came to be uh, back in 2013 when Oxfam Canada closed their office in downtown St. John's. So they do a lot of important work in the community, provide a bunch of essential services, you know, operate for food and clothing for members of the LGBTQ community in particular. But apparently a former board member has misappropriated, a.k.a. stolen, $60,000 from their funds. Most of those funds come from donors, but now they find themselves apparently in a very precarious position. No doubt they do. So they let go of the staffer. And then, of course, the long-term problems. Who knows what the future for the social justice co-op is? But when donors hear those particular stories, about $60,000 of money that they donated for specific programs has been misappropriated, that's a problem. Now, they have indeed strengthened the organization's bank account and security protocols and access to funds, finalizing this incident report regarding the $60,000 that are missing. But if someone who's representing Social Justice Co-op would like to come on and give us a better idea exactly what the negative impact of this bilked money is, you know, just far too often we hear these stories about people put in positions of authority, responsibility, and power and access to funds willfully and purposefully doing what this person has done. Apparently this board member, unnamed, has resigned, but the story's not going away. Uh, a couple of big ones in Ottawa. Let's go. So today in federal court, there's going to be the first ch court challenge on the federal government's ban of some single-use plastics, right? Whether it be checkout bags, straws, sturges, sticks, cutlery. 
So they've been taken to court by a bunch of companies who, of course, are in the business of producing these products, whether it be Dow Chemical Canada, Imperial Oil, Nova Chemicals, and some organization called the Responsible Plastic Use Coalition. Now, a couple of fairly flimsy things on, the, on tap here. So one quote really tries to diminish the concern, and this comes from one of the representatives, uh, the lawyers representing these chemical companies. The test for toxicity is not satisfied by proving that a single cap, bottle cap, poses a risk to a single animal. Nobody's saying it's about one bottle cap. You know, in the world of plastics, I go to the same issues. You buy a Barbie doll, it's encased in a tomb of plastic. You go to the grocery store, and there's a cucumber, a single cucumber wrapped in plastic. Everywhere we turn, there's plastics. It's in the food chain. It's in the water we drink in the form of these microbeads. So we'll see what becomes of this particular court case. And they also go back to say that, you know, the goals are laudable, but must be pursued in accordance with the Constitution, and also saying that the provinces have the authority for waste management, not the federal government, but they, that court challenge begins today and lasts for a couple of days. Now it goes right through Thursday. And yesterday the Prime Minister spoke once again. He called a press conference to talk about Chinese interference. Now, you know... I think he was probably a little better yesterday, but still pretty clumsy, and went all the way up to, nudged close to, but did not say there will be a public inquiry. So what he says is of note, and several investigations will be launched here now. So one is about the appointment of a special rapporteur. And a rapporteur is a pretty fancy way of just saying someone who's uh, appointed by an organization to report on proceedings. That's basically it. So they say this will be an independent, eminent Canadian, who will take on this seriously important task. Now, it is going to be so critically important for this person to be as nonpartisan as possible. People have partisan leanings as part of their human nature, but can have no past ties with the Liberals, cannot be viewed and questioned before the proceedings even begin about impartiality. So this is going to be quite tricky to select this eminent Canadian. So that's going to be part of it. Now... You know, Pierre Poliev, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, was offered some high-level security briefings, and he says, no, thank you, that's a trick and a trap, you know, just a way to silence Conservative critics who are very vocal and fair ball about what the level uh, of Chinese meddling in the 2019 and 2021 elections, and there's a lot to this. So involved in the rest of these pardon me, investigations, the National Security and Intelligence uh, Review Agency, talking about whether or not these activities were lawful, reasonable, and necessary. The National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, they all have received top-secret uh, top security clearances, so they can look at all the moving parts in under the Security of Information Act. So those investigations will be launched. Now, with the special rapporteur, that, that person and their group will bring back a series of recommendations, which can include the calling of a public inquiry, so if they do re, uh, arrive at that conclusion, the Prime Minister said yesterday that all the recommendations will be abided by. Okay, the RCMP have also opened an investigation as of yesterday to talk about some of the leaks inside and the potential violations of the Security of Information Act. You know, we had all these leaks, so they're all part of the overarching story. But, you know, I heard Tim Powers on with uh, Jerry Lynn Mackey this morning saying, in Ottawa, some of the thoughts are, is that this special rapporteur and the other parliamentary committees doing these investigations and some of the time lag between now and their final recommendations might give the Prime Minister an opportunity to call another election before 
there might be a public inquiry. So a lot to all of that. And if you are satisfied or not, and of course no one in the Conservative Franks is satisfied, include NDP member, uh, leader Jagmeet Singh. You know, you wonder what this impact will be on the relationship between the federal NDP and the federal Liberals and their supply agreement inside this minority parliament, but there's a lot on that plate. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on line number one. Good morning, Diana. You're on the air. Hi. Actually, this is uh, Velma, Diana's mom. Oh, good morning, Velma. Uh, yeah, I'm calling from Clownville. And I, I would like to wish all the athletes and my daughter uh, good luck with their winter games in Grand Falls, Windsor. Oh, the Newfoundland Labrador winter games. Okay. Yes. So who belonged to was participating? My daughter, Diana. And what's uh, what sport? Uh, snowshoeing. You know, the issue when you have an athlete who is competitive enough to compete in provincial games or the Canadian games, there is a lot of time and energy put into qualifying to be competitive enough to go to these games, eh, boy? Yes. Yeah. They put a lot of, a lot of um, they were practicing a lot for this. And, and, uh, and I'm so happy that, uh, you know, that my daughter wanted to go to participate in it. Yeah, good for her. So what exactly is involved in the, uh, the snowshoe competition? I imagine there's a bunch of different distances, is there? Oh, yes. She had to run, like, a certain distance. I'm not sure what distance she'll be running yet till I get there, right? Yeah, it's fun. So you're going, going to go watch and support yeah. her? Yeah. Terrific. When did the game start? They start uh, Thursday. Excellent. Yeah, I, I should actually dig in a little bit and find out a bit more about what kind of disciplines and how many athletes are going, those kinds of things, maybe talk to an organizer. But you're obviously a proud mother. I am very proud that she's going, right? And there's a lot of lot of lot of different groups all over the island, Newfoundland, Labrador that will be participating. Yeah, of course. And how old is Diana? Diana's thirty nine. Oh wow, thirty nine. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. I'm glad. Did you say your name is Velma or Valma? My name is Velma. Velma. It's nice to have you on and I'm sure the athletes appreciate your best wishes of good luck. Yes. Thanks for making Thank time. You. Enjoy the games. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, you know, I guess there's more conversation to be understood because the next Canada Games is the Canada Summer Games, which takes place here in St. John's and surrounding area in 2025. We know there was an announcement between uh, municipal, provincial, and federal monies to do some upgrades for a new track, what have you. Curiously, where the old track was, uh, just outside the Aquarina, that's happening. We know there's got to be some pool upgrades or refits that have to happen to accommodate the national games. So there's a lot of preparation to be done yet. And, you know, people wonder whether or not spending money on these types of affairs is really a focus area that we should have. Now, some of these big events, like, for instance, when the, the city of St. John's went all in on the Briar, it absolutely created somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 million in economic activity. And so the Canada Games are way bigger than the Briar. The anticipation is that there's going to be 
tens of millions of dollars in economic opportunity because we will see thousands of people come to the area. So there is a return on investment. Some of the so-called legacy leave behind of a new track and a new f- track and field uh, area right there at the Aquarina Complex. Anyway, let's keep going. Let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I want to I wanted to applaud the city for uh, an unanimous approval of the tiny homes on Leslie Street. Is it one or more tiny homes? I just heard it out of the corner of my ear. It's multiple, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and you know, for especially for infill housing and stuff like that, you can put a lot more uh, people living in a smaller space, and it's you know, it's it's one of those things. Not only not only are you finding homes for people who desperately need them, you're also having a very small footprint and a very small cost to keep them keep them heated, keep them maintained. So it's you know, just all around, it's, it's a win-win, and and it. Um, and I'm, I, again, the fact that it was unanimous and that the city and their staff are supported, I think, is a very positive sign for the future. Well, these tiny homes, they are going to be more and more popular in the future. I remember it wasn't that long ago, I think the community was Flat Rock, maybe Pooch Cove, uh, where Jess Puddister, who we've spoken with on this program in the past, they were trying to get approval for their tiny home, and it got nixed. My thought at that point was, you know, given the growing popularity of a tiny home, the first community that embraces it will see an influx in population. Because people like the thought. You know, now it wouldn't necessarily work for me, the current st- uh, structure of my family with four people all six foot tall plus. But for some, it might be absolutely ideal. And whether it be the footprint or the cost to uh, keep the home is very attractive. So good on the city. I think that's a good idea. Now, I will wonder aloud what the residents on Leslie Street and surrounding area think because the argument in some corners is that it will hurt the, my property value when you introduce this sort of mixed bag of housing in one uh, one street, one neighborhood or another, but I think that might be exaggerated. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to the who are actually occupying the tiny homes as opposed to, you know, you could have yuppie people with, you know, with very positive lifestyles and great neighbors uh, live in the tiny homes, or you can have the opposite, but that can happen in any home anyway. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, Also, um, you know, again, encouraged by the fact that we're exploring electrification of Metro buses, and a bunch of money is is flying down to the city level. I just hope it doesn't all get spent on consultants, which unfortunately, a lot of times we study stuff to death, um, although it needs to be studied. I just like, you know, I want to hope, hopefully the money gets where it needs to go, which is to reduce our carbon footprint. Yeah, that's a real geographical issue. It's not that whether or not an electric bus can work, but can it work with the configuration and the hill, the hilly features of the city of St. John's? I don't know, but that's, that's got to be carefully examined because that can go sideways. Yeah, like many things, you don't necessarily want to be the first one doing it. Nope. Um, I, I was driving Sunday night in my neighborhood. I heard the sound of a tractor. I thought, I wonder what they're doing. Maybe they're widening the roads, but down down the road. And a couple of times I've seen this. Down the road came one of those large front end loaders with all the blades on it. But he was just driving around. I just it was after midnight. I was, I was thinking, I wonder, I wonder, is there a reason? But I'd seen it a couple other times, and you know, when there wasn't snow and stuff. So I, I just I wonder out loud if um, if we're really monitoring our diesel consumption. Like I don't. I realize we have to have staff on, but. You know, in case, and that's the model we have. But I don't know if they necessarily need to be out driving around. And this might might be an exception. But I know, yes, last night I saw they were out doing some widening, and there was dump trucks, and and I was, and one in particular took off from the from the red light and just kind of zoomed out Black Marsh Road. And I thought, I wonder, are, are they held accountable for how they're driving? Because one of the best ways in 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 any jurisdiction, especially with the larger vehicles, we can significantly reduce our carbon footprint just by driving 
more conservatively. You mention it all the time. You know, you see people racing around, and you say you'll see them at the next light. But the amount of fuel that they burn and wear and tear on their vehicles, but all that translates directly. I mean, if everybody drives, you know, as conservatively as possible, that can make a big difference. And I just wonder if the municipalities have education programs for their staff, and if it's part of the of the uh, the mantra that, hey, you know, we're going to go out and do our job, we're going to do a great job, we're going to serve our residents, but we're also going to use as little, or we're going to idle as little as possible, we're going to drive as inaggressively as possible. Uh, fair enough. And just with driving and footprint kind of stuff, I read a story in The Economist uh, the other day about trying to green up the way they mine for things like graphite in particular. And, you know, people are worried about uh, this mass uh, quick exodus from internal combustion engines into electric vehicles, when in fact the reality is that's happening at an absolute snail's pace. So there's only about 27 million electric vehicles on the road globally at this point. They think the number might make it to uh, somewhere around 40 million this year, which is about 3% of the planet's vehicle fleet. So there's another 97% to go. So people's views and thoughts that this is all happening so quickly, not really. Depends where you live, too. Asia and Europe are, are going much faster than we are. But your point, there's, is two, there's 2 billion vehicles in the world. Yeah, and, 3% uh, electric. That's it. Right. I, I watched actually Tesla just had a, had a, their annual general meeting. It was fascinating. It was four hours long. And, but, you know, they laid out how they, Elon is, and his team laid out how they see us being able to have a sustainable planet. And and renewable powering the grid was a big part of it. Switching to electric vehicles was a big part of it. One of the things I never thought about before is that every electric vehicle has a battery in it, and that's a way of storing electricity that you don't need to have on demand. But but they said basically the only way it's going to probably work is with autonomous vehicles. You hear a lot of people say, you know that that the future is for us not to own vehicles, and and that is part of Tesla's vision that there will actually just be less vehicles and they'll be autonomous. And there's a lot of people that it works for. And it won't work for people who live in rural Newfoundland, but a lot of people won't own a vehicle, but they'll have their app, and instead of a Uber coming for them. Yeah, in a parking lot. I think that's a little further down the road. And even some of these driverless vehicles, they still give me plenty pause for concern. Uh, anyway, let's uh, let's get to whatever you, whatever else you want to talk about before I do have to go, Tom. Okay, no problem. So I, I was watching a really interesting video the other day, and it, and it was highlighting um, the, the the challenges that we have with cell phones, and how in particular youth and young people. And when I say young people, I mean probably people under forty and probably even older. How how we've how we've introduce cell phones and in particular the social media apps that come along with them and and the addictive nature of it and and how as a society we really need to contemplate you know how can we i guess reverse the impacts of uh, of that decision or that implementation and and it you know highlighted really strongly how the isolation and the the negative thoughts and and all the different impacts of in particular social media on young people and how we you know we don't allow young people to smoke until they're a certain age and allow them to drink until they're a certain age but we're giving young people um these devices which are which are highly addictive and which which is transformed and i mean i had a cell phone when i was in my 20s because that's kind of when they were coming out and it was a tool and and now it's transitioned obviously for many of us to way more than a tool and and you know a lot of us will have our with me i'll have my cell phone and it's, and it's not on my desk when i'm working but for a lot of people it is and and the difference is They'll have it face up with all its notifications, whether they're working for the public service or they're working for private sector or they're studying if they're a student, whatever else. And and it's such a distraction. And it seems like if we look at the, you know, as the increase of cell phones and, and the different apps that go along with it has gone up, the mental health of many of us are going down. 
And, you know, I, I think we need to have a, a bigger conversation. I've, I've heard a lot of parents, and I, even on this show, talking about how uh, wish the schools would uh, not allow cell phones. And, um, but it's like, are the schools going to be the bad guy? Like, we as parents can't be the bad guy or girl. And, and it's just, I think we need to try and have a conversation where we realize the dangers, we realize the impact that it's having, and try and figure out some, maybe some social rules. Like, for example, maybe people shouldn't have cell phones in the room. For example, and well, that's, children. that's a parental decision. We're, you know, we can't have these social contracts that we all have to abide by because one person or another thinks it's a good idea. But the responsibility uh, re- remains at home. You know, inside the school, with how a cell phone is used, absolutely the responsibility is on the district or the department or the administrators. But the overall usage of a cell phone in the hands of one of your sons or daughters, that should be guided by the parent and nobody else, right? Well, the challenge is that we used to have a society where there were norms and there was like a communal sort of uh, and usually intergener- multi-generational so that we followed the we followed the rules of the previous generation and we and we rebelled against them but there was still like there was still whether it was the church or it was uh the elders or whoever else you know they kind of set the tone for how we behaved and 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 parents you know followed along and then at some point that just changed dramatically and and although you don't want to you know you don't want the government in telling people what to do but society needs to, and the community needs to somehow put their heads together, recognize these challenges. Because right now, there's a whole bunch of businesses that are prospering, and 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 they're just making money. And and nobody's, I mean, as a society, we need to have difficult discussions, and we're not having them. Like you know, we're just saying, oh my goodness, the government needs to save us, or no, we need to do something. But but it's not their job to save us. But I just feel like, I mean, conversations on this show are great, but I think that. You know, Newfoundland Labrador needs to put a group of people together, educators and parents and, and different advocates, and have these broad discussions and educate people and, and point a finger at stuff and, and as opposed to saying, again, we're, it's downstream thinking that, you know, we need more counselors, we need more psychologists, we need more of this to help all the people with their mental health. But, but if we're not going to look at prevention and identifying some of the root causes, then we're just chasing our tail and there's not enough psychologists and and counselors uh, in the world probably to save us if all we do is try and deal with the fallout. It, the, the fallout is real, but, you know, I don't know, maybe a, a high-level public social discussion could be helpful, but people are going to do as they see fit inside their own family unit because my 15-year-old might use a cell phone in a certain fashion versus your 15-year-old, and we all have our own human nature and coping mechanisms and lot in life that may make our usage so much different that, you know, societal rules. I don't really want anyone to tell me how I should parent my children when it comes to access to their cell phone uh, necessarily. So, but I think I get your point, Tom. I appreciate the time. Off to the break we go. Okay, take care, everyone. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye. All right, uh, generally speaking, tax season and scam season. Coming up after the break is RCMP Corporal Jolene Garland. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Join us online. Number one is the media relations officer for the RCMP NL. That's Corporal Jolene Garland. Good morning, Corporal Garland. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. So there's lots of scams going around. One indeed relates directly to the RCMP. 
Absolutely. We've had two really recent reports that have been concerning. So last week we had uh, two reports of victims from central Newfoundland who reported both receiving a phone call from an individual who identified themselves as an RCMP officer and provided uh, a name, a fake name of an officer. Uh, the scammer then claimed that a legitimate loved one of um, the victim was in trouble, was arrested and needed help with respect, respect to uh, money for bail. So they actually named a, a real loved one, gave a name of a nephew, a niece, a, a grandson, whichever, and said that this person had been, you know, is in trouble with the law, has been arrested and now needs your help. You need to come with this bail money. So uh, pretty serious offenses, pretty serious scams and certainly believable, you know, with respect to when a, a real name is provided like that in this panic kind of situation where that individual, your loved one, needs to be helped. You know, they refer to this as the grandparent scam or a Facebook scam because you're right, you know. So if I'm Nan or Papa and I get a call and they've seen my Facebook page and I'm bragging about uh, Johnny's exploits as a hockey player or something, they say, Nan, it's Johnny, I'm in trouble. And boy, your first things first, your heart starts to uh, race and then the nerves start to pang and you'll do whatever because your beloved Johnny is in trouble, whether it be needing bail money or had an auto accident or whatever it is. So we've got to be so careful because it's so easy to whether it be on a telephone call or an email to replicate something that looks very, very real and believable. But at almost every turn, if it's unsolicited or unprovoked or you don't know what's going on, it's probably a scam. Absolutely. And that's unfortunate that that's how we have to train ourselves to think these days. But it really is in order to properly protect ourselves. In these cases, it usually does relate to the older or elderly um, individuals as victims. Um, and, and that could be for trying to catch them off guard or in a state of confusion, possibly. Um, some of the scams, you're right, that they do actually portray being that individual. And in others, they, they don't. You don't get to speak to the victim. You're just speaking to the, uh, you know, police officer, you know, the, the, the scammer who's saying, listen, it's constable so-and-so and you need to come and you need to get this money now or he's going to be, you know, further complications, he's going to have more charges or whatever the case may be. What the public needs to know, the RCMP, and I can speak for the RNC as well in this point, will never ask you for money. That is not going to happen, not for bail, not for any other reason. So if you're getting a phone call like this and being threatened, you know, to bring money or, or send money, uh, that's a scam. Hang up the phone, contact your local police, and report it. And at that point, what does or can the RCMP or the RNC do about it? Because sometimes, you know, they can spoof a telephone number that looks like it's coming from the middle of the city, but it may indeed be originating in India. So what can the RCMP even do? So in the case of these recent scams, we actually believe, um, I think last week the RNC had a press conference about an individual who was arrested at the airport on a plane on his way out of the province. So he booked himself in uh, for, for a week basically down here, a few days, and is believed to be responsible for the vast majority of these crimes. And the RNC did uh, gain grounds to make the arrest at the airport and charge the individual in relation to one of these scams, which carries the same motive as several other reports that are under investigation right now. Yeah, it was a 23-year-old guy named Charles Gillen, uh, charged with extortion, fraud over $5,000, conspiracy to commit an offense. So let's hope if he's guilty, he is taken to task to the nth degree because that level of willingness to scam anybody, including a senior, is just simply disgraceful. Okay, so help us understand, 
You know, when people go to the anti-fraud, Canadian anti-fraud coalition, or they go to the RCMP with some of the most notable scams that are going around, when and if it is taking place or originates from outside the country, what type of relationship does the RCMP have with other uh, sovereign nations and their law enforcement to partner up to try to weed out these people? I know there was one notable, uh, sizable arrests made in India a number of years ago that was in conjunction with the RCMP and people on the ground in India. So how does that work when it might not even be here? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. The local ones are a little bit less, I guess, um, you know, less difficult to to enforce at times, especially when you can go ahead and draft up warrants that lead to local bank accounts and the like. Uh, The ones that are, you know, internationally based are certainly more complex in nature. Uh, The RCMP uh, will take all reports of fraud and will forward the information and encourage the victim as well to contact the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre uh, that's where all this information is being taken in and taken and having a great look to see where the connections are to really delve deep into the information that's received and to, as well, as you mentioned, work with international partners um, with respect to trying to find those that are responsible. This is not just happening in Newfoundland. This is not just happening in Canada. So this is something that, you know, is happening throughout the world. And yes, we do have law enforcement people that are working on it. You mentioned one big um, you know, arrest and uh, I guess takedown of a, of a crime ring, and and you know we're very much hopeful that this that kind of enforcement will continue. As of yesterday, uh, nobody in the RCMP or the RNC is going to be allowed to have something like TikTok on their phones, and that's in an effort to try to reduce the, po- the possibility or potential for cyber attacks. The cyber attackers, the people installing malware, ransomware, what have you, they seem to have outpaced legislators and law enforcement. How is the RCMP positioned to deal with those types of matters? Because it's becoming more and more prevalent, and it could be more and more dangerous, not only with health authorities, but energy companies, utility companies, what have you. So can you speak to that, Corporal? Uh, I, I probably that's something for another time to delve really dig into. Uh, okay, into. we can do that. I mean, yeah, for sure. If we want to have a little look, I can certainly outsource that. But I mean, as technology develops, so does policing, right? That's what we have to be cognizant of is, uh, you know, the different crimes that are evolving. We have to evolve and we have to specialize and we have to get training and delve into, you know, how do we deal with these crimes? Uh, one more, and this one comes specifically from a news release from the RCMP. You're asking people in particular on the West Coast because of the establishment of the RCMP, RNC Joint Forces Operation West, about if you know there's a drug dealer living on your street, what do you want people to know? We want people to, I mean, it's, I would say most people tend to already suspect that or maybe have that information or, you know, maybe they're not aware of what's going on. And not all the time does it look like there may be a drug dealer because there's a lot of traffic at somebody's residence. That doesn't necessarily mean they're trafficking drugs. However, we are interested in knowing who you know about in your area because we know as a neighbor you see the activities that are happening you're seeing suspicious activities some of it we may be aware of and others we might not be and every little bit of information that we receive is certainly helpful that last little bit of information you may have may be that one piece we need to secure that search warrant to get in and have a look in that house people can do it anonymously because retribution might be a concern you know someone doesn't want to be found out that they 
reported one house one individual or another as being the den of iniquity or a drug dealing or a crack house or what have you so call the rcmp there's a designated drug line then the area code of course is 709-637-4221 so in summary uh there will not be law enforcement agency in this province call you're looking for bail money or never soliciting funds from the general public it's always a scam hang up and call the police and if you know there's a drug dealer in your area, let's try to weed that person or that group out by reporting it to the RCMP as well. Good to have you on, Corporal. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's Corporal Jolene Garland with the RCMP. She's the media relations officer. Uh, break time. When we come back, Jocelyn's in the queue to talk about mobile doctors. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Jocelyn, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and all the listeners. Same to you. Welcome to the show. What's We've on, got a what's problem. on your mind? Pardon, pardon me? We got a problem. What's your problem? Well, I, don't, I don't have any problems, Patty. Thanks now for asking. We always say, you got the power. So... The port of port and now the Botwood crowd with the uh, e- construction or whatever, the erection of the windmills. Right. Well, yet to be and determined, the, but yeah. I'm, okay. I watched a show on, uh, I used to say it was Detroit PBS, but I think it comes from Maine now, the public broadcasting service in in the United States. They were showing, uh, they had a show on about ammonia and nitrates in separating the oxygen from the water molecule. And they were saying how explosive it is. And they were checking out four kilometers away is how far it can explode and the results of the explosion. But anyway, I want port port to be aware because they say six kilometers of, you know, mom says, man, the destroyer, that's for sure. When they put up these windmills, they need six kilometers of land to put up the windmills. So you got to have access to and from. And what about clearing the vegetation? Let's get into the uh, spraying of the Torden 101 instead of the pickaxe and shovel. Yeah, we, we don't we don't spray that anymore. They don't anymore. No. They stopped. Okay, that's good. Yep. They got the pickaxe shovel. That's good. Well, no, I think they'll probably use heavy equipment. But, yes, there will be land cleared, which is the environmental sensitivity that people are worried about, access to the backcountry, what it means for long-term damages to the environment. So, so those are the things add into it, what people refer to as the eyesore of these massive windmills. I mean, these are really big structures, absolutely and massive, when compared to the ones in this now, area. Botwood is. What? Botwood. There's talking about the... Windmills in center Newfoundland? Yes, that's one of 31 proposals that's out there. The big one that gets all the controversy is World Energy GH2 on the Port of Port Peninsula. But the folks in Botwood and surrounding area, they seem very supportive of the uh, the project uh, as proposed. Joni Mitchell, the song uh, Patio Lanterns. You know, you don't know what you got till it's gone? Yeah, I don't think that's Joni Mitchell, but I get, so, I get where you're going. <laughs> yeah. yeah, be aware of what you got for sure. Uh, and why don't they build it all over there in Germany and use the German space? Why are they using like you feel like guinea pigs? That's what Newfoundlanders are, like guinea pigs. Yeah, um, 
Well, it's a fair question. The same thing, like we've asked Mr. Risley as a Nova Scotia-based businessman, why not do it in Nova Scotia? Why here? And his reasons are what they are. He says, you know, access to water and wind. And don't forget the Titanic was sunk just off Newfoundland. What does that have to do with it? By the icebergs. And now the ice is coming in. They're talking about the, um, the what do you call those, uh, ice busters, the tugboats or whatever. No, ice breakers, yeah. Breakers, whatever, yes. And so how are they going to get from Port-a-Port all the way over to Germany? And you got Marine, Marine Atlantic is... is uh, yeah, but I mean, it. is that really the massive concern? Because obviously there's transatlantic traffic all the time. Well, you don't want to interrupt Marine Atlantic going from Port of Bass to North Sydney. Yeah, but that's for sure because they got enough to deal with. But yeah, with but that's that's got absolutely nothing to do with it, though, right? Well, they got to travel some way. Yes, but of course, there's other ships out there every single day on top of Marine Atlantic. I mean, but they don't come into our ports and our. Yeah, Marine Atlantic doesn't whatever. go to Botwood or, or Stephenville either. No. You gotta tell them, to, and and was it take anyway. care of your own before you take care of someone else? And I also want to say quickly, uh, hello, you know, to Simeon Chekovich, that's for sure, Simeon, and the other callers like Gus and Leo. We still think about Leo. He hasn't called at all. Have you heard from him, Patty? For uh, Leo from Harbour Round. Pardon? Leo the fisherman. Yes, Leo yeah. Seymour. Yeah, Leo, we used to hear from him years ago, uh, relatively frequently. Yeah. Uh, he'd say he was born on the beach. Uh, Leo was a great chat. He's from Harbour yeah, Round. I haven't heard from him in ages. I don't know what's going on. We still repeat what he says about, supposing I knows what I didn't know. Okay. He says that, supposing I knows what I didn't know. Patty, I also want to uh, Very quickly, because i got to go. Back in the day, Lorraine Mitchell, bless her heart too, she said that heating to the residents or whatever, whether it's in apartments or houses or whatever, is a necessity. And there should be no tax on the light bills, the heating bills. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, so take the tax away from the light bills for sure. I appreciate and, the time. And then there's Dr. Bruce Aylward. No, we've run out of time. terrible, Patty, any longer, don't I? (laughs) Well, I mean, we're a little bit all over the map, Justin, but I'm going to take one more before I get to the news. Right on, yes. Take care. Take care. You too, Patty. You got the power. I don't really think so, but (laughs) thanks for the call. All right. Bye, Jocelyn. So I think Dr. Bruce Edwards with the World Health Organization. Is that what we're talking about there? All right. Hard to know. Uh, let's go to line number four. Jackie, you're on the air. Hi. I've been listening to the radio lately. Oh, of course, all the time. And the people are talking about all the phone scams. Yep. I'm going to tell you, but but a week, two weeks ago, our beloved dog got, dog got ran over, got killed. So we went searching for a puppy. We were shocked at how many puppy scams were out there. Like, oh, yeah. It was unbelievable. They wanted your driver's license. They wanted your address, all kinds of information. And we realized quickly there was more scams than there was legitimate dog dealers. Yeah. You send us $500 now and we'll deliver the puppy. You can give us another $500 when we deliver it to your door. 
stuff like that. Yeah, it's again, it's just simply relentless to be able to avoid the scammers, whether it be for a puppy or anything else. Like we just talked about scams with Corporal Jolene Garland, about one that's going around where people are looking for bail money. So you just have to be so unbelievably careful. And, you know, get referrals, get testimonials from people who have bought a puppy from one group or another because, you know, as as often or more often than not, it is a scam. It's just unbelievable, hard to deal with. There are some beautiful, uh, legitimate puppy breeders out there. Oh, yeah. Stuff like that makes it bad for them. And they're not, you'll know the the difference because they're like, well, we don't have any puppies right now. We can add you to the list and they're not asking for money up front and they're legitimate. So I would suggest to go to the Puppy Kennel Club. I did end up getting a puppy through referrals from family members. And that's the right way to do it, is to get referrals and testimonials so that you know you're dealing with a legitimate group that is producing quality animals because there's also concern with the type of puppies that some people actually get the puppy, but all kinds of potential health problems and bad breeding uh, practices, what have you. So always a fair warning, Jackie. Anything else you want to say this morning? No, just be aware of all the different scams that are out there. 100%. All right, take care. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Dave wants to talk about the wind to hydrogen proposals, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line five. Dave, you're on the air. Hey, Penny. Good morning to you. Good morning Thanks for to you. My call. No problem. Good. Um, guess I'm calling in today. Just uh, you know, we talk a little bit on Twitter sometimes about this, all of this. Uh, I'm one of these uh, big proponents, I suppose, uh, of the uh, hydrogen uh, strategy, and I guess that's what I'm calling in. I got a little inspiration to call in t- this morning, and and uh, if I was going to say anything, I'd take it from the uh, point of view is uh, we're not going fast enough, uh, and uh, I'd like to see uh, hopefully some more movement happen quickly. And um, when you say uh, that means what kind of movement, um, more of a vision being discussed about this. And I think, you know, you will probably ask, you know, what are these benefits? Part of the benefits come from the idea of having a vision. And at this stage, that's what is key from leadership. Um, For instance, this morning we talked about the electrification of buses. One of your callers did. And I haven't heard any mention of the word hydrogen in that discussion. Now, I don't know if that's built into their plans, and I know they're just looking at a proposal stage. But from a, when I say a, an overall vision and, and where benefits come from, um, when it comes to buses uh, and bus technology, uh, hydrogen fuel cells are very mature. In fact, actually, they're a Canadian driven technology. I don't know if you're familiar with like Ballard Energy Systems out in BC. They're one of the leaders globally. But there are, you know, hydrogen fuel cell buses being manufactured in Canada right now. Uh, is, is that a solution for every municipality? No, no, by no means. Um, but if you are in a region that is producing hydrogen, well, that opens up whole doors of, of, of opportunity. Uh, 
basic idea of, of, of electric buses, which are being implemented, is that you just got to deal with the strategy. Your fuel cycle is hours, and and that means you got to you know readjust how you use your buses when they come off a road, which they can be used as they take hours. Well, right off the bat, hydrogen, you use it just like you would use a gas. And and the key aspect here about why you got to get ahead of this is that when you talk about electrification of buses or electrification of anything, electrification of, of your home, there's there's investment, a lot of capital investment. Anyone buying an EV, when suddenly they look at the cost of putting that charger in their own home, that's like, ooh, that's a bit of a, of a shock. Um, right now for the city, they're going to be looking at a huge part of the cost of electrifying buses is to put that that, that infrastructure of the charging in. Well, if we're going to implement a hydrogen strategy for this province, we need right now at a very high level to put that option and, and an asterisk by it on the, on the charts. We're not just any municipality. If we go into any consultancy, they're going to give hydrogen a, a certain weight. But once again, if we are producing hundreds of thousands of tons of this on island, that availability, and once again with leadership, uh, the royalty program came out. Good. They got it out there, publicly displayed for discussion. I would add in um, with wind projects right now, often, like if a municipality builds down the states, a state or a county builds a wind project, oftentimes um, there will be some sort of royalty program that will allow both wind energy to be supplied. But if the town doesn't need it, the company can sell it off and then give a royalty to the town. So basically, you have a wind source that can either supply electricity based on the value of production at cost, or the company gets to enjoy some profit selling it somewhere else and then gives a little bit of a royalty. Yeah, but at this moment, though, Dave, the proposals that are in hand, or at least the ones we know anything about, are all export models. You know, there's some talk about extra power maybe being sold back into the grid. We don't really know what, how much or how frequent or anything like that at this moment in time. And you say the... You know, speed is the essence. Speed is the real uh, issue for you here. Some people mm. think that we're moving extremely quickly here. Yeah. Uh, well, once again, now, why the speed is. Uh, the way I look at this is that right now there's two phases. And like you would say, yeah, there's a lot of unproven technology, a lot of this, you know, forecast. And you're right, uh, to the degree of when Germany says they're going to be expanding out there, their hydrogen usage, you know, they announced just today their plan to start uh, – uh, retrofitting uh, uh, gas uh, turbines with hydrogen turbines uh, over over a time frame, this sort of thing. Okay, that's future. But the thing is, there is right now an existing hydrogen market, about 100 million tons, give or take. That's there. And in the past, what, 24, 36 months, we have had over a trillion dollars of guaranteed public money between the EU and now the, the, the last fall, that big IRA program, hundreds of billions of dollars that basically, I mean, if you want to guarantee, that's your guarantee right there. The money is done. Yeah, but I, I get a little bit confused. Tons, and just to finish there, though, about the rates, whoever right now can first sign those supply contracts, because remember, Germany came here and signed some agreements. They also went to Qatar. They went to Algeria. They got agreements signed with a whole bunch of people. They're covering their bases. Whoever can get that green hydrogen, that first hundred million delivered, and say, listen, we can do it here, we can produce it here, boom. That gives them a huge advantage. That's the that's the suppliers that will go on to reap the advantage of the next two, three, four hundred million tons 
that are expected to come into demand by 2050, right? So there is a hypothetical element, but there is a built-in industry that is right now being served on a silver platter. And that's when you hear about why there's this momentum about hydrogen players like Nova Scotia has their environmental process approved. So their plant, for all intents and purposes, up there has gone ahead. So as far as I'm concerned, we're behind right now in terms of that. And I'd hate for Newfoundland's industry to sputter out. I mean, Risley and GH2, they're just one player here. You know, I want to see a full maximum maximization of our onshore. And then we got to start producing our offshore. That's that's to become a major producer in my vision. Well, you know, that, there's some there's some talk offshore about electrifying offshore production uh, oil plants or facilities, that, you know. Absolutely. But some of the things that you're broaching are not necessarily government issues. I mean, to secure markets with power purchase agreements is the sole responsibility of the proponent. Now, absolutely, we are absolutely yeah. moving pretty quickly here with eventual approvals. There's every reason to believe that World Energy is going to get their go ahead, and for that project and or whatever other project gets approved, and or if these companies can actually raise the capital to get into the game as opposed to simply pitch an idea, make a proposal, yeah. apply for Crown Land. Uh, just a, yeah. another couple quick ones before we, we go. So I, I know you pushed back pretty quickly and fairly forcefully, which is all good, about my thoughts about the fiscal framework because what's in it for us has got to be a really important question that we need answers to. We know what's in it for World Energy GH2. We know what's potentially in it for the group out in exploits. But what's in it for us has got to be part of the conversation. You know, access to our wind, our water, deep sea ports, proximity to market is what we have going for us. So in the water royalty, no royalties will be satisfied or achieved until the entirety of capital costs are recovered by the proponent. Now, let's just stick with world energy. My comment was there's a lot of unknowns between recovering between now and recovering, say, some 12 or 12 plus billion dollars before we get our royalty. My comment was that things could change, and they absolutely very well could change. And it's not just whether or not there's a, a different fuel source beyond hydrogen, it's whether or not they have a more attractive option with another supplier or someone closer to home or whatever the case may be. So I think that is a potential problem. You don't think it is. I don't know why, because the Watts Center for us well, has to be more than jobs. When, I, when you talk about the water, I mean, for me, I look at that water situation as our competitive advantage. That is to say, yeah, I mean, the very fact. Remember, like, right now there's like three or four places that have the ability to produce at scale with us. The advantage is that, like, for instance, you know, you have, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, some of the Middle East, and that's what they're going to be doing. They might actually end up building nuclear reactors instead of wind farms. They are going to be building desert-sized solar plants. My goodness, you have Saudi Arabia money. How can we compete? Because they also have to build desalination plants to supply the water. So, like, that very fact that we have a uh, supply of water that is currently running into the sea that used to be so, or not used to be just supplied and, and whatever royalty program was given then to the uh, uh, paper mill, now that can be used uh, as a, an advantage to undercut and produce the cheapest green hydrogen in the world. I have, you asked, like, you know, where my faith is, my real faith in all this is that we can produce the absolute best product in the world like and this comes down to every element we have to put every element this uh, equinor forget building stuff here that's two three four five years of building stuff no 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 equinor right now has a couple billion dollars they're putting into hydrogen strategy 
I demand to put a billion dollars here. I want Equinor as a hydrogen player. I want their future to be intertwined with us. It's not a public versus uh, a private. We want an, I want an economy here. This is a chance to build and become a world global leader of an economy. And that means our public and private has to interplay here. We have to be willing to this. To play with that. But Dave, we, it really does feel like we are simply being the host province to an economy of private sector profit until there's more unknown, pardon me, there's more details associated with the answer to the question, what's in it for us? Just to be the host province might be a badge of honor going to some international conferences, but unless we get an economic uptick to provincial uh the, the provincial coffers, then this is all about their profits. This is all about I their agree. opportunities. This is all about providing... Royalties are secondary in my mind. Secondary to what? The jobs. The idea of an economy. That is to Second say, to jobs. Are we getting thousands of high-paying, year-round jobs in rural Newfoundland? Where are we going to get an economy that bridges anything outside of a couple satellite offices? When you look at what the oil industry has done for Newfoundland, and remember, the oil industry, we've never been a center. We've been a satellite office. One of the key things about getting the benefits and getting ahead of this, for instance, is to A, like it's not, I'm not saying that there's no risks here. We have to invite, but I mean, for instance, we're dealing with a world right now where a lot of these precious jobs that I see being guaranteed, I'm also aware that there's pushes to allow controller jobs to be remotely operated out of wherever of course like i would absolutely demand along with giving okay. away our water to make sure that we have executive offices put here you do that by combining in some tax advantages on that element yeah well but, you know once again we combine all elements let me just put you you say about examples of of, of of this okay key element here this whole idea of being able to supply the hydrogen for our own usage at cost now, the long-term cost here that I would play with the industry is looking at with about $2 a kilogram. That's what you said of that. All right? So now okay. you talk about transport and how hydrogen can revolutionary things, uh, revolutionize. We don't need uh, we don't need uh, power. Oh, we don't need power, but it's all about how you deliver it. So right now we're going to green our industry, mining, heavy industry. There's a reason why they're leaning towards hydrogen. Now, last couple of weeks ago, Nikola, the, this trucking company, unveiled their new transport truck. Now, you talk about trucking costs and the cost of getting goods here. I would start ferries. You put hydrogen in the ferries. Now, to give you some idea of the cost basis, it takes 80 kilograms of, 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 of H2 to put into one of these transport trucks. On a full load, 80 kilograms will get you 700 miles. So that gets you from Port of Bass to St. John's. Now, in most places, they're looking at a cost of between, they're going to hope to get it under $20 a kilogram. What I envision here, what the benefit is here, is to live in a place where we are the producer, is that our hydrogen costs are $2 a kilogram. So that means you're looking at a cost of a transport truck at full load of $160 to get across the aisle. I think that undercuts our current okay. fiscal costs. Uh, just because I'm I'm well over time, and you know, you say thousands of jobs. That is really optimistic when we talk about how many of these proposals. Uh, just hold on, Dave. Based on the numbers, I got about two thousand jobs, high-paying, full-time, spread around the island. I don't know how you come up with those. Uh, 
anyway, I mean, there might be massive opportunity there. There's certainly possible opportunity for the private sector proponent. The question has to be what's in it for us. And at this moment in time, I don't know. Beyond jobs, of which I have no idea how you come up with 2,000, there's still a lot yet to understand with, a, with an industry in this province, which is absolutely in its infancy. I appreciate the contribution, Dave. Thanks for Thank this. Thank you, buddy, for the time. Take care. All the best. You're doing a great job, as always. Stay in touch. All right. Bye bye. All right. That is going to be time to take a break. When we come back here, we've been talking a lot about recruitment of doctors. We're going to hear from the Director of Advocacy and Communications at MNL, Dr. Dietra Walsh, about her thoughts on it. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Director of Advocacy and Communications at Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Dr. Deatra Walsh. Deatra, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Couldn't be Thanks better. Thanks for having me. Uh, happy to have you on. You know, it's an amazing world where we've gone from the sole responsibility to recruit doctors lay in the hands of the regional health authorities, maybe the Department of Health Community Services. Now we've got come home year incentives, recruiting in Ireland and uh, across the country, and municipalities now playing a role. For instance, Bonavista sort of breaking the ice on that one with a financial incentive and a, a $1 service building lot. You have your concerns res- or reservations. What are they? Well, I think we have to start off by saying, you know, municipalities do have a role to play in recruitment and retention, you know, as one topic, and also in healthcare because healthcare is happening in communities and within municipalities. So there's a role to play. Um, you know, we have to ask, well, what can that role be and what should it be? And I think that's the really important question that we as an association um, are asking and also looking at sort of you know, what's happening out there. Um, You know, just a couple of points. Um, You know, the Health Accord identifies municipalities as a a key part of, you know, um, this bigger picture. Um, When the government did consultation on the economic and social well-being plan um, before Christmas, again, you know, everyone recognizes that municipalities are part of this and municipal leaders, um, but what should they be doing and, and what needs to be done? And I think in terms of, you know, should, is the role for them to provide financial Financial incentives is the question we need to ask. Is is that what they should be doing with their the funding, the very, the little funding that they have? Because we recognize that municipal operating um, budgets are are quite strained at the best of times, and certainly even more so now. Should they have to take a portion of their operating funding to do this work too? Is should that be on their shoulders? I think that's the real question we need to ask. You know, you hear from say Michael Teller, for instance, the mayor of New West Valley. And you know, in his reservations, that we may have not only the essence of pitting communities against each other, but those with the financial wherewithal might be now all of a sudden at the top of the pack, as, a prior, as opposed to a priority list given shortages in one region or another. And he makes an excellent point here, because if New West Valley can't compete with Bonavista, then they're going to be on the outside looking in, which is not what's supposed to go on here. So you do say that the municipalities play a role. What specifically do you think the role is, if it's not financial incentives or cheap building lots or what have you? Right. And I think here we need to look at, um, you know, since 2021, actually, um, M&L has been involved with a, um, a municipal engagement committee, a municipality engagement committee on, on recruitment and retention. Um, that's with the Faculty of Medicine, um, Department of Health. And really that's looking at, you know, what the kinds of things municipalities already do. 
service provision, um, ensuring that communities are welcoming. Um, you know, all of the elements of that um, are, you know, are the services, how do they market themselves as destinations? Um, and again, you know, what are their recreation services like? You know, what are the, um, the amenities in a community? So, I mean, those are sort of the, the kind of work that municipalities would be doing and should be doing anyway, supporting sort of what their communities look like, um, ensuring they're, you know, maintaining their core levels of services so that, you know, when residents say, where do I want to live? Um, you know, in X community that, you know, those things are in place and whether that's recreation, whether it's water and sewer, whether it's clean drinking water. I mean, those are get to the core municipal pieces that would indeed attract people in. And again, getting back to these, uh, you know, notions of ensuring communities are welcoming, um, they're open spaces, maybe it's, you know, uh, green spaces, whatever the case may be. That's all the stuff that our members already do and strengthening their ability to do that through supporting infrastructure funding, you know, fiscal stability for municipal uh, you know operations all of those things play a big part again it comes down to should they have to use their own resources um, to recruit physicians financial resources um, and and you know I would argue no they shouldn't they shouldn't have to do that um, to your point on competition um, you know and they you know we never want our members to have to compete against one another um, that's not the right environment for them they already have to compete on so many other things unnecessarily so um, so you know we need to provide a, a, a framework under which our you know the government's most important partners don't have to compete with one another and that is based on you know equal partnership collaboration resources and and certainly not making municipalities do more with less because that's a problem. Absolutely. And, you know, I kind of struggle with this, because if I was, for instance, the mayor of Bonavista Vista, and we had the capacity to add to the recruitment efforts, I wouldn't hesitate, because I'm there to, uh, to represent the best interests of my residents. So does MNL, is MNL going to take a, a formal position on this, you know, or just highlight the potential pitfalls here, or, you know, put forward... Uh, directives of guidance or rules about how municipalities proceed here because, you know, they all want to just do what's best for their community. Not to, not at the peril or the risk for another community, but simply looking out for number one. And in this case, we're, we're, we're talking about Mayor John Norman. So what's yeah. MNL going to say about this in any formal fashion as opposed to highlight the potential problems or pitfalls? Right. And, and that's a very good point. And I think it's important to point out, you know, and we've said this many times, uh, President Cody has said, has said this as well. Like we don't get involved in conversations about individual municipalities and what they're doing in particular, um, because at the end of the day, it's up to the council. It's at their discretion what they want to do and make decisions around that council table. They are empowered to do so. Um, and yes, I mean, I think you make a very good point, And certainly um, Mayor Norman has been talking about it. If, if they have the ability to do these things, um, you know, they want to take care of what they can take care of. So in terms of, of positioning on that, you know, again, we would we would not get involved in the weeds of what an individual municipality is doing. Um, and certainly we respect that these are, you know, local government entities with their own empowerment and their own decision making processes to do whatever they want in the best interest of their residents. I think what we need to look is more broadly in terms of should, and back to my earlier question, should these levels be downloaded to the municipal, uh, or should these burdens be downloaded to the municipal level? Is that who needs to be paying for recruitment and retention? Um, and again, whether municipalities do it or not is not the point. It's that should this actually be the scenario in which our municipal leaders are finding themselves? 
Um, and that's the kind of things we need to question. And again, to the point that, you know, MNL has been talking about for, for many times, and I just mentioned it, you know, municipalities that currently cannot do more with less. They're being asked and tasked to do so many things stretching from core municipal issues and infrastructure to, you know, um, community health and safety, which we recognize, again, they have a role in. But, you know, how thin can one spread oneself um, given the capacity and the resources that they currently have? And we would argue that we can't stretch any thinner right now. We've got some major pressures with inflation we've got major infrastructure challenges and you know um to to just uh, speak to our release that we put out last week our municipal operating grants haven't increased in um uh, nearly eight years they've been at 22 million for eight years so again how can municipalities do more with less and should they be asked to do that on this particular issue i think is really important to question i don't want to make this stretch because i haven't really thought it through but with the concept of cooperation, collaboration, regionalization, or the county system, this might be an effort where one community doesn't necessarily feel pitted against another, but when we describe to Dr. Megan Hayes about the upside for someone to move to my community, any kind of healthcare professional, opportunities for their partners and their children and amenities and stuff, maybe inside that envelope of regionalization, there can be collective efforts put forward as opposed to fighting with or being pitted against your neighboring community or town. So I haven't really thought that through, so I'm going to leave that for now. Uh, very quickly before we do have to go, any update that you know about MNL regarding these 200, I think $213 million in federal infrastructure money that has not been spent? Minister Cody says it will be spent by the deadline, which is the end of this month. Do you happen to know if there's an update there? Um, and uh, President Cody has spoken about this as well publicly. So we know that the funds have been allocated. Uh, we just don't know where. Um, and how and you know we were asking questions about in terms of where those funds have been allocated to what municipalities and what for so so no we don't know anything um, further on that we do have um, President Cody has a meeting next week with Minister Loveless and we're hoping to certainly get some more information on that in terms of where that funding has been allocated because every single cent should be spent Uh, really appreciate your time and your contribution to the show this morning Deatra thank you Thanks so much for having me. Anytime. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. That's Deatra Wall. She's the Director of Advocacy and Communications with MNL. Break time. Let me go back. Donovan's there to talk about fish quotas. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line one. Donovan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well. How about you? Uh, I'm pretty good. They, you know, just they decided to hop on and talk about the, a little bit of the fishing quotas and what's going on with it and uh, how it changes every year. So last year in Newfoundland, the quota, the snow crab and shrimp cut back, as well, as you probably know. Like, uh, the the shrimp quota cut back 15%. And then my problem is there, with the shrimp quota cutting back 15%, and uh, the lobster and the turbot staying out in quota, my question to the FFAW is, 
why is there not a quota for the turbot? It's just all wide open the quota. But annual changes to total allowable catch and then to the IQs, that's always going to be part of the conversation, isn't it? Yeah, I'm thinking so. But the thing is, is that, see, with the turbot and stuff, we got all open quota. Like, we got no quota for the turbot. But then when it comes to snow crab and shrimp and scallop, we got a quota. Like, uh, I think it's time for the FFAW to put a quota in on the turbot. Just say this always the same as every other fishery that we got. But now, the FFAW doesn't establish quotas, though, right? Uh, I don't think. I think it's the... I can't remember who it is. It's the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Uh, yeah. Interestingly, we're supposed to... Well, I was expecting a call from the union last week regarding mackerel and the biomass update on snow crab, but we can put that out there to them and what work they're doing with DFO to have established individual quotas on turbot, but of course they don't they do not do that themselves in-house. They simply get... That information is uh, granted uh, through DFO. Yes, that's right. They had in a mackerel. I, I don't know a... Why they closed that down last year? Like I across the Newfoundland, there in some places they there was thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds washed up on shore. Yeah, we heard all the stories, and of course, the federal minister Joyce Murray in this uh, instance, she's yet to make a determination. But we do know that it's a shared stock with the northeastern United States. It's a migratory stock, obviously. They proceeded with their mackerel fishery on a reduced quota last year. We had a moratorium. No, none of that bait fish was caught. So we're expecting an update here. They were presenting a petition on behalf of, the, I think, some 185 harvesters that uh, shared their input on this. So we'll see where it goes, and we'll we'll see if we can get uh, the folks at the FFAW to come on and give us an update on some of that stuff sooner than later. Yep. Uh, and the other thing is, is uh, with the quota cuts and everything, uh, what we can't do, uh, what I can't understand is why are we still paying our union dues? One of these times is the quota is going to be that low that we'll go and get our fish and we won't be able to afford nothing. Like, we won't be able to afford to live or anything. Yeah, but of course, the the union really doesn't have a whole lot to do other than establishing their position representing harvesters for the price per pound of one species or another as opposed to what the total allowable catch will be season to season, species to species. Uh, I appreciate the time, Donovan. Anything else you want to talk about while we've got you? No, but that's everything, eh, Patty. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. Take care. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, I can throw that to turbot uh, issue. And if you look at it, even just speak about turbot, if you added up the amount of turbot in our waters, our territorial waters, and how much of it is allocated to fish harvesters here versus the international amount of turbot that's taken, it would blow your mind. Uh, let's keep going and say good morning to the PC member for Fairland. That's Loyola O'Driscoll. Oh, wrong clicker. Good morning, Loyola. You're on the air. Good morning, Petty. How are you this morning? Doing okay. How are you doing? Good, my friend. Good. good. Uh, Petty, Carl, regarding the ambulance issue, I spoke probably two to three weeks ago. I called on the ambulance issue in Cape Royal, and uh, we're still dealing with it. 
regarding the ambulance being in Cape Royal and not being resourced and no one there to staff it to be able to answer some emergency calls. And, you know, we're, we're, we are going to get into a crisis here at one point in time that, uh, you know, somebody's going to be a very serious accident, very serious something happened, and, and no one there to respond in a, in a quick manner, I'm going to say, you know, to, the, to that area especially. And uh, so, you know, it's a really big concern, and I'm getting calls and emails every day regarding this ambulance service. And, you know, it's time for the government now to step in here and, and take care of the area and put somebody here to, to take care of this area. It's a big concern, and you know, they, we got a Facebook page started up uh, uh, this week up there, and uh, you know, we're getting a lot of questions, a lot of concerns, and sometimes a lot of people don't call you; they just accept it. But it's not acceptable to be happening to not have an ambulance in our area, Betty. Yeah. So, I know I believe I've heard reference to the fact that this really began to become an ongoing problem up as far back as Boxing Day, and Correct. so. Yeah. Is it a, a case of some days there are there is coverage and some days there are not? It's the great unknown, or has it have been consistently no ambulance available at in that particular site? Which I believe that ambulance is in Fairland itself, is it, or is it in Cape Royal? No, it's in Cape Royal. Okay, uh, and you know that is the issue. So today, if you make a call to the ambulance, do you know or don't you know it's in the area? So if ambulance is sitting there. There's no problem. You're driving through Cape Royal every day. The ambulance is sitting there, and they got a house there that they stay in. But there's no one there. So some, like, I think a week or two ago, there's somebody there. We don't know when they're there. And that's my, but I've been talking to the minister's office and saying is, listen, if they're not in the area, you should be putting out a public service announcement to let the people in the area know. Because if you've got somebody, and I use this all the time, but I mean, there's all kinds of different instances could happen. But if somebody has a stroke, it's important that they get to the hospital and get this clot buster as quick as possible for that person that's happening. And hopefully, you know, that, you know, they can, that can happen. But you know, sitting there and you wait for an ambulance for an hour, that's important to know in, in my district. And that's where I'm getting at, is that it's not acceptable that they're not there. It's even more not acceptable to say that we don't know if they're there. And, you know, you're sitting, you're waiting, and, and it's an emergency. That's why they're calling these 911. It's an emergency. So, you know, they're sitting there not sure what the right thing to do. And that is the concern in the district. Yeah, because even if there was a formal announcement to people in the area, whether it be in Renews or Formuse or Cape Hayden, Cape Royal, whatever, is if they knew, okay, there is no ambulance service here. Even though you drive by and you see that ambulance parked in Cape Royal, there's no one to operate it. So if something pops up, as opposed to dial and think that you're going to see a reaction in 20 minutes or whatever, and then all of a sudden you're waiting for an hour and a half because it's been dispatched from St. John's or maybe from Holyrood and a little bit closer, if it was me, I immediately don't even worry about it. I get in the car. I'm gone. So I can save myself a lot of time by simply doing that. So the information is always going to be key. To just leave it there unattended to, and the great unknowns, is not helping. And secondly, you know, if we're going to use that health court as the blueprint for trying to shore things up and whatever the transition might look like in healthcare, if they say there's going to have to be doing away with the disconnect between all the different private ambulance offerings and the public sector offerings from the regional health authorities, or I guess now soon to be the, just simply in the department, let's get at it. Because if that recommendation is going to make it more efficient and available and reduce red flags and uh, pardon me, uh, red alerts or whatever they call uh, more and more frequently, let's do it. Where are we? We've been talking about this for years. This is not simply since uh, Moya Green got our hands on this conversation, or not Moya Green, Dr. Parfrey and Sister Elizabeth Davis. We've been talking about this literally for years. Absolutely, Patty. And I've 
called your open line show a good many times and dealing with an ambulance issue, even that was in Trapassi and, you know, even in Cape Royal now as well. And it just seems to be getting worse. And they've had this, I've only been there three and a half years, and it's been a pretty big topic in my district. But, you know, we need to get on this. They've been in power since 2015 or 16, and there's been ambulance issues before I got here, and they're still going on. So somebody has got to like, sit down and let's get this figured out or let's try to figure it out as best we can. And that's where we need to get. That's a big, big issue, and we should be at that. That should be taken care of. Uh, I appreciate the time. Now, there's a couple of things I like your leader, Mr. Brazel, has spoken out about the new uh, approach to borrowing with uh, selling a billion dollars worth of bonds on the London Stock Exchange. He had some concerns. I think everyone, when something is new and we didn't really know it was coming, concerns are legit, genuine human nature. Anything, any thoughts on the approach that the province is taking here? Well, Paddy, I guess they're experimenting to see what they can do if they can get a lower rate, then I, I think that would be a good idea. But, I mean, I haven't really done into it. I heard it yesterday and, you know, really haven't spent a lot of time looking at it. But, you know, certainly something that uh, I guess worth looking at for the province. If it can save us some money, then I think it's a good idea. Uh, Paddy, before I leave, I'd certainly like to congratulate all the Winter Games athletes that participated in the uh, Winter Games in PEI, and especially uh, Michael Gazine, who lives in Torsco, who won a bronze medal for us uh, in uh, boxing. So I'd certainly like to congratulate him as well. Yeah, the 75 kg division. Good on him. Yeah. Good on all of them. Excellent. No doubt. No doubt about it. Excellent. Yep. Thanks, Loyola. Thanks so much, Paddy. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Okay. All, all the best. Bye bye. Yeah, if we're going to. Like, I don't know if people have a huge concern with exactly how it's going to be run if there's a one-size-fits-all for ambulance services, because if it's some big multinational that comes to town, comes to the province and sets up shop, or it's all simply run from the Department of Health Community Services, as long as people, when they are in an emergency, dial 911 and get a response close by and get this, uh, the treatment that they need, I think that's all people really care about. You know, of course, we've got to be concerned with the value of contracts and money flowing out of province and all those types of things. But that's where, if we had an understanding about that, that is the play. The government is going to go through it's a, either an entirely uh, publicly run system or entirely par privately run. Because then we take the next step in the conversation, as opposed to where we are now, the disjointed, disconnected arrangement. And, of course, all the... The shortcomings and pitfalls and delays, uh, boy, oh boy. Let's take a break. When we come back, power rates, ambulance, air ambulance is next as well. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick Daly. How are you? Not too bad. How you doing? Grand, grand. Nice to see almost spring coming. The almost. temperatures are creeping down. Yeah, yeah. Won't be long now. Listen, uh, speaking about spring, you know, uh, it's nice uh, when you can get a little spring in your step in the mornings and you're thinking that you're saving money on electricity. So I have friends of mine, as you do, all over Canada, that once 8 o'clock comes and even later 10 o'clock and then midnight, uh, you can do all your wash, you can do your clothes, like in your 240 uh, wash dryer and your washer and then your cooking and all that. You can put stuff on after hours. And they save uh, almost half their electricity bill. And I'm not so sure why we can't offer some of that here. I mean, a lot of people have to, like, they have to cook these days. The foods are too expensive to go in and just buy them, like, already made in the store. So you want to be cooking, and uh, and you're going to be cooking. You know, you turn on that 240-watt uh, range, it's going to cost you a lot of money and if we had lesser rates in the evenings it would take the pressure off a lot of a lot of younger families a lot of older people 
who just don't have the money to pay on these huge electricity bills anymore. Yeah, I mean, that uh, those peak demand times and the prices yeah. that fluctuate throughout the day. And, of course, those were implemented not in an effort to protect the consumer, but in an effort to protect no. the grid. That's true. You know, so no, I know that. You know, I it's guess like that's we where got to protect our own grid too. I, mean, that's, I think that's where the motivation issue lies, though. Mm-hmm. Like, if it was all about trying to spare the uh, end customer uh, a few shekels because they decided to turn on the dishwasher at midnight or they decided to do their laundry at one a.m., that would be fine. But as we all know, revenue has been a key concern for hydro for quite a long time. So unless there was a grid-related problem. I wouldn't anticipate it's coming to town, but it's an excellent idea, and it happens in a fair number of jurisdictions in North America. Well, the person I spoke to was a good friend of mine in Ontario, and uh, and and I saved them. I mean, it saved them a lot of money, and they do everything after hours or whatever they can when it comes to the bigger bigger utility stuff in your home or in your apartment, condo, whatever. And it really saves them a lot of money, and it, and it gives them that extra money to buy better food, to put some money away for those rainy days, you know, when you're going to retire and stuff. And it's every day. I mean, we're using all these appliances most days. I guess some people try to starve it off for, for the weekend to do laundry, but most, I guess a lot of people can't either. But I think that we should have a look at it. Even if we give it a pilot project, you know, see if anyone really gets really wants to use it after 8 o'clock or after 10 o'clock at night. What's the harm of trying that out? And, uh, and we do have times when we're getting pretty close, just a couple weeks ago with the temperatures where they were. Uh, Hydro was, was watching that pretty carefully. Uh, and when we're at peak, peak time, Sorry, at peak levels across the province for the last two or three weeks, you know, many, many days like that. So anyway, just thinking out loud, that would be a nice thing to, to have a look at for all of our population. And God knows that's one of the larger bills we get every month. Yeah, and they gently encourage people to consider, you know, the peak demand times before going to work. And at supper time, of course, they, you know, when it is going to be especially cold, you'll hear them make those mm-hmm. soft recommendations. Uh, I'll add to the ability to save some money on electricity. You mentioned Ontario. There's plenty of spots in Ontario where they've got full-on net metering, too. So I can put solar panels on my home. I need, sure. I'd need, use what I need for my solar panels, whatever's in excess. I sell it back to the grid. More savings yet again. Yeah. So all those things, look, a lot of people are using solar panels, and, uh, and a lot more would use them because the price is so low right now. I think it's time to do those things and put more back on the grid. I appreciate that comment. I appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Take care. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number two. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Okay, Eugene Nippert calling. I'm calling about uh, past president of the Air Ambulance Medical Transport Group. Uh, plus, I'm uh, calling on behalf of the concerned citizens of Fogo Island. And uh, thank you to you and, and Fonts and VOCM for taking my call again. And you probably won't hear from me anymore on this air ambulance issue. I've been doing this for four years, and you know, I've been like a broken record. And when I shows up in your queue, you must say, oh, my, not Eugene again about air ambulance. Well, I mean, if there was an update, be more than happy to take it. Is there? No, and that's why I'm calling. Now, I would call with a update, with a heart and a half, but I'm calling because I've been trying for four years on behalf of these two groups to try and get air ambulance used on Fogo Island, and nobody is listening. And I'm talking about, I'm talking like you know, the Minister of Health, the Minister of Transportation, I've been contacting uh, the opposition. I've been contacting the MP, I've been, and council is aware of this. Uh, so I don't know where else I can go. The public uh, has been asking me to call the public. Hello, Eugene. 
Was that something we did, fans? Okay. Okay, uh, fans maybe inadvertently pressed a certain button. But we are going to call Eugene back because, uh, again, inside the world of ambulances, you know, the only move we've heard in the recent past is to amalgamate, for dispatch purposes, air with ground ambulance services. Which, okay, if that gives us some sort of streamlined impact, that's fine. But it does little to nothing to address a variety of issues regarding whether or not there's one in your region, whether or not it's privately run or publicly run. You know, the turnaround times, the offloading times at emergency departments or what have you. So that just blend of the dispatching uh, organization really doesn't do a whole, whole lot to get down to the crux of the matter. It might be a nice baby step forward, but it's certainly not a solution for some of the problems that we see. Uh, let's rejoin you, Gene, on two. You're back on the air. Yes, Patty, thank you very much. So uh, what do you do? You know, we had one air ambulance used there in, last, in the last year. Uh, we got four air ambulances in the system, and I followed them religiously, and they're going to the rural parts of Newfoundland, like Marystown, St. Andrews, Botwood, Clarenville, or wherever. And But they're not coming to Fogo Island, and we're on an island, and the next morning, if you want to take a ferry out of air, and the, the air ambulance is not being used at night, and the ferry is being used, you can't get out of air at 10 o'clock in the morning. You've got doctor's appointments. You've got flights that are gathered. The list goes on, and people are very upset about it, of course. They're coming to me. Uh, I wish they were coming to their MHA and their M MPs and, or whoever because uh, I'm not getting no action, and I'm very disappointed about that, and it's going to be too late when someone dies in the back of a road ambulance on the ferry, and that can happen like it did from Bonavista. Someone died in the back of a road, uh, a road ambulance, and uh, we, we can have it much faster with an air ambulance, and we're on an island, and, you know, we could be blocked in with ice, or the list goes on what could be happening with the ferry, broke down or whatever, and they won't be, they're not using their ambulance. And, Patty, uh, I, I've been asking you to try to find out why over the years, and, and I guess you haven't had any luck either. No. Nope. So where do you think we should go from here? Well, I don't know. I'm sure you have you think that you've reached the end of the rope and I've hit the brick wall so repeatedly that I think you said that you won't be uh, calling or talking about it any further. I don't know what the justification is to not have an air ambulance service in one part of the province or another. I know there's been several poor, uh, proposals put forward, whether it be displaying some cost savings and, of course, talking about uh, the toll on potential human life when we have, you know, in a ground ambulance, on the ferry, and then taking the highway into the hospital versus what would be a much quicker solution if with time is the essence. And in emergencies, it always is. So I wouldn't know what to say about where to next. No, and it's it's hard to figure it out. We got four airmen in the system, and they're ready to go for Fogwell as well as any other part of the province. Uh, it's costing the same thing kilometer for that airmen to travel to any other part of the province to Fogwell. It's, it's all the same because I know I got my homework done on that. Uh, we don't understand. We got nobody speaking up for us, and it's not good enough. And you know the people of Fogwell are going to are suffering, and they'll suffer even more if they lose a loved one on the way to on the ferry into Gannon. I appreciate the time, Eugene. Thanks. Thank you, Patty. Stay in touch, brother. Take oh, care. Stay in touch. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, and very quickly, add to transportation-related matters in healthcare. I'm hearing more and more stories coming from Labrador regarding the Medical Transportation Assistance Program, the old MTAP, about, you know, it's not only for people who are having to come up front with costs, coverage for air travel, and then waiting for reimbursement from the province. It's the stories coming from families who have repeated uh, visits from Labrador to, say, for instance, St. John's over the course of one year. So not only does the subsidy get reduced, but if we're talking, you know, having to go to uh, charities or to your parish or whatever to try to even cover the cost of air travel up front, I mean, it's becoming prohibitive. 
And what happens when and if people just will not be able to afford to take the flight to get the treatment they need? It's pretty. It's a pretty interesting conversation because if the process now is you pay up front, you get the money back from the government after you've proven a variety of things. How long you were here, where you stayed, and whether or not you attended your appointment or your procedure. But we could still put it that way, and you have to prove that you did all those things and get the money up front. And if you did not provide proof of attending your appointment or what have you, we send you a bill. And then you pay. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we did mention off the top of the program that Kane's Quest, the 3,500-kilometer snowmobile race in Labrador, was paused yesterday. They got back on. Paused again this morning. There's a caller who wants to talk about that right after the break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one, caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Uh, a little bit frustrated this morning with this Kane's Quest. Uh, the second pause now for the second day in a row. Said Monday they were all made well aware of the current conditions. They didn't want to send the chopper because the choppers were basically grounded so they couldn't get a real bird's eye view of everything but they still pushed on uh, despite being told by many local communities that it is unsafe there's too much water there's brooks overflowing the board still said i'll send them anyways to me this is a bad failure of their safety management plan they didn't assess all the risks they didn't take stuff into consideration uh Last night, we had a team from Finland who had to swim ashore. It was that bad. Oh, no. So they lost their machine and had to swim ashore? Team 66, Finland, had to swim 50 feet ashore last night. And another team hit the SOS button, and basically he was told, we'll come get you in the morning. They are failing at every safety aspect of this race. And if that becomes the reputation of the race, then it can go very quickly go bye-bye in the near future because people aren't going to want to put themselves at risk simply to complete a snowmobile race. So this is something else. I mean, apparently they had, now I, I'm not in the room, so I don't know about who knew what when, but I've been told by several people now this morning that they were told of the breakup of night specifically near Hawks Bay between Cartwright and Port Hope Simpson and still went ahead with proceeding with the race. So that's a genuine concern, obviously. They were- they were told about the ice breakup and also with the 35 to 50 mils of rain between Regalette and Port Hope Simpson, the river that runs down out of the Mealy's, they were made well aware that this river is overflowing its bank. That was a mandatory route that the racers had to come through, but yet they still sent them. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the organizers want to see the race get completed, but they cannot, even in their own public or quiet moments, be able to live with the fact that they possibly put this, the uh, competitors out there in obviously unsafe conditions. If someone had to swim ashore, that is all anybody needs to know with whether or not that area was safe for the race. That's unbelievable. Yep. Well, you look at, uh, there's a couple of Facebook group pages out there, like Kane's Quest Racer Updates. Every post all day yesterday while the race was paused was pictures of rain just pouring down two and three feet of water on ice, open holes in the ice, and every community saying, not safe, not safe. Why do you send them? But 
the Kane's Quest board refuses to acknowledge that the local people in these areas are saying it's not safe, but send them anyways. I love this race, yes, and this is a dinger to it, but the way they're doing this is, is not looking good. I spoke uh, yesterday with Chris, one of the organizers, and I asked him about the protocol and the process for coming up with a no-or-go decision. And he says the communities are all consulted, all the checkpoints are consulted. They come up with a consensus to either keep going with the race or deposit once again. So, uh, look, if some areas were telling them yesterday, no, we cannot race in this area, but they went ahead with it anyway. It's a question I guess we'll have to pose back to the organizing committee when we get an opportunity because we cannot see a headline coming from Kane's Quest that a team was lost, you know, not had to swim ashore, but is gone. I mean, this is potentially dire situation because it's already a grueling enough race and the terrain is tricky and unpredictable. But if we have open water, that snowmobilers, unbeknownst to them, is going to be all of a sudden right in front of them, it's just not good enough. Yeah, well, that's like yesterday. Uh, so west of Black, Black Tickle, the boys were in on skidoos on support sleds and as you go pick berries there, there's not a blade of snow and there's brooks, brooks running down through the valley. Oh, my. Uh, I appreciate your input here this morning. We'll keep an eye on uh, Kane's Quest and what happens throughout the remainder of the day or whether or not the conditions are going to continue to deteriorate and potentially not see a conclusion to this year's edition. We'll see. Yep. Have a good day, Patty. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, stick with Kane's Quest. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Jordan, you're on the air. Thanks, Patty. Yes, no, I, uh, yes, I've been following now, and it seems that the uh, the organizers are now, you know, figuring out what to do next so hopefully they'll come to a conclusion and we'll see in a few hours what happens but i yeah, i called up uh, to talk about because um, we at top of king's quest i did have uh jim and leela actually here in the district with me uh, this past weekend um for uh, a number of meetings and stuff and one of them we actually did was we held a, a town hall and want to get some perspective of uh, residents of lever west on on health care and their challenges with health care so we had a great discussion on that and the uh, the common thread seemed to be through the discussion was just access and both uh, within the community but also air access to uh, to specialists and I wouldn't even say some of them will be even be specialists but access to things that seems to be not be able to be delivered in Labrador and the big common thread was everybody seems to have to make multiple trips a year to the island for healthcare and it's not being covered and a lot of people here that I talked to say that between dealing with their own personal insurance, dealing with the government's MTAP program, most of them end up having to pay out of pocket and losing thousands of dollars a year trying to access health care. Yeah, I speak to it all the time. I, in fact, I did it just before we went to the news. So I, I guess the the overarching concern that maybe the government leans on is that they need people to have had their travel completed, provide the proof required, and then money's out the door. But in fact, if we're going to talk about proving anything, for instance, if someone tries to take advantage of the MTAP and just comes into town for a visit, then, of course, when they can't provide the proof that they went to an appointment or they even had an appointment uh, and or attended their procedure, then we'll simply send them a bill. And if they don't pay, we can garnish their wages. We can do all kinds of things to get the money back, which does add a layer of bureaucracy and frustration to it. But I think the larger frustration is when I hear stories of families that are turning to community groups, having raffles and 50-50s to just try to cover their air coverage for either themselves or their children to come in for repeated visits throughout the course of the year, there's something brutally wrong there. Well, absolutely. We have people, like I said, now, now a lot of it, and what, what drives 
uh, I guess a lot of it that uh, people find upsetting is, so you go out on air ambulance, say, you're taking it on air ambulance, you go out, you get your procedure, you get your emergency surgery, you get whatnot done. And then you have to linger around in St. John's because sometimes you don't have $1,000 for a last minute one-way ticket back to Labrador. So you have people actually get stuck in St. John's trying to get back to Labrador because they don't have cash in hand to pay for that ticket to get back to Labrador. And, and this is this is the, what 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 we find like that drives people is that if you take them from Labrador to do something they can't do in Labrador, put them back when at the end of the day. But they won't do that. They just wheels you out the door and says, "Good luck on your adventure." This is what is actually driving a lot of people in Labrador up the wall. Is that we're supposed to have equal and fair access to healthcare in this country? It's in the Canada uh, Health Act, but. How can they tell us in Labrador that we have fair and equal access when it comes with a $2,000 to $3,000 price tag to get to St. John's? So this is where I honestly think that if it, that even within the Canada Health Act, I think we're in violation of it here in Labrador because no one here has free and fair and equal access to health care in Labrador right now as it stands. If you have to pay $3,000 to get to St. John's, and they could say with the MTAP programs and all that stuff you want – they say they got the 50-50 program, but that's only 50%. They're still, in most cases, you're still paying almost $2,000, even after the government does the 50-50 program. Most people don't have that in their bank accounts right now. So this is what we found out at the town hall, and and, and, and it was interesting to see that my, my colleague Jim Din, um, their jaw dropped when he hears people tell him how much money it costs them just to go and see a specialist. Yeah. It's prohibitive. Uh, you know, there. I think there is an argument to be made that, you know, it might contravene the Health Act because it makes specific reference to extra billing. And this feels a lot like extra billing. Now, it does not say in the Health Act that we have to have, you know, every single service under the healthcare sun in certain proximity to one community or another because that there's all kinds of formulas out there for what, what, what community might need a PET scan or whatever the case may be. But this does feel like extra billing, and I, I think an argument could be made that it is. Absolutely. And, and I'm not calling for, you know, you know, a cardiologist on every corner here. I'm calling that if my family doctor says, Jordan, you need to get to St. John's and see, you know, specialist X, fine. Then, but that means I've been told by my doctor that I needed to see this other doctor. Therefore, I should be able to get on a plane covered by my MCP to go out and see my, MC, and my MCP covered specialist, get back on the plane with my MCP and get back to Labrador right where, I be, where my, my journey began. That's, that's fair and free, uh, fair and equal access to healthcare. But when my doctor says, oh, Jordan, you need to see a specialist and you, I, he's, he's, he needs to see you next week. Well, that's a last minute airline ticket. The airline's going to ding me more than if I booked in advance because they're going to say, oh, that's last minute, Jordan, you know, here, your, your ticket's $2,000. And I got you know, I gotta go. I gotta get a hotel. I gotta get all that while I'm out there. So this is no, this is not, this is not equal access to healthcare. Labradorians right now, as the system stands, have to pay for healthcare because we don't have close to what same things that uh, people on the island enjoy when it comes to access. And that's fine. I understand that. You know, like I said, I can't have a cardiologist on every corner, but at least I should be able to see a cardiologist. Fair enough. Uh, I think you also want to talk about seniors' housing before we run out of time, Jordan. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So we we also want to talk about that uh, we, quickly as a, that we did have also another thing that did come up talking about healthcare was actually access to seniors' housing because up here in Lab West, another thing that actually we find in here is that seniors are living in homes that are not able to be modified or things, especially with mobility issues. And we wanted to bring a, a thing that a lot of the seniors that were actually at the town hall on healthcare mentioned about access to this because they're finding that a lot of 
their health care health concerns are related to falls and stuff related into these homes that can't be modified and they're not living in spaces that are able to accommodate aging so you know this is another thing that we, we brought up is that we're the only region in the entire province that does not have seniors housing or some form of seniors housing what do you mean by a house says unable to be uh renovated or refit to accommodate what does that mean yeah. Well, so a lot of the houses that were built up here were built by the mining companies for healthy young families that work on, you know, with three or four or five children in tow. This is what they were built. I, I grew up in one. The stairs, you can't half the staircases are narrow. You can't put a stair lift in half the staircases. You know, they um, they're split level, so you have to get upstairs to get up into the rest of the house. They uh, most of all the laundry services are down in the basement. Another narrow staircase down into the into a basement. So a lot of the seniors and stuff are living in these houses that have narrow staircases, winding staircases. Their laundry's down in their basement. They live up on a top floor. You know, they they weren't designed with what we call today universal design. And, and, and you know, that was that was a, that, that was a trend back then anyway. You know, people didn't think about this stuff, that this town was actually going to have people aging in it. It was meant to be a mining town. And turns out we liked it here, and we turned it into much, so much more. So these houses right now are almost impossible to modify for someone who has mobility issues or anything like that. And we're the only place, Patty, in this entire province that does not have some form of seniors housing. So out of all 40 districts in this province, I have zero. I have nothing when it comes to seniors housing in this region. And it's actually causing health issues with a lot of seniors because a lot of them are falling. A lot of them are having issues getting around their homes. You know, they're not comfortable and they're not able to there. So they have to do so much more. So uh, so this is where we're to right now is that we just have nothing. And every time that any group here goes looking for funding or anything like that, they're denied. And the biggest one is they come back is cost. Well, what do you expect cost? You're building in the north. That's an expectation that, you know, it's going to cost a little bit more. But it doesn't mean that you have to deny, you know, I think right now there's almost 2,000 seniors in this region right now. So, you know, it doesn't mean you have to deny a majority of them, especially those with mobility issues, you know, the right to live in comfort and age in place. But right now, a lot of them now are in, in situations like that. And, they, and you look at today, we have freezing rain here in Labrador West today. Slips, trips, and falls is, is a really major concern around here. Yeah, you might be able to relocate uh Laundry appliances, but certainly can't do anything about the the width of a staircase. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Jordan. Thanks for the call. No worries. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Jordan Brown is the NDP member for Lab West. And you know, I mentioned aging in place. Again, I'll make reference back to the health court. That's one of the focus areas. You know, we don't have much in the way of a program for what they call the frail elderly. There is some thought on the national level or federal level about uh, an aging in place benefit. What that looks like, we don't really know. There was a couple of seniors advocates from around the country that met in Ottawa in the recent past. But, you know, we've got to get that right. The numbers are right in front of us. We know it's coming. We absolutely know it's coming. So whether it be plans for the numbers of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and Canadians that m- will be living with dementia, the numbers are out there. Whether it be the numbers of seniors over the age of 65 or 75 and what their needs might be for long-term care or to age in their own home, these are plans that are going to be take time to create the programs and supports properly and efficiently, but these things are coming. We've been talking about it for a long time. Are we prepared? I would suggest we're not. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about Patty's Day. All right, talk away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one. Say good morning to the uh, grand, pardon me, the deputy grand knight of the Knights of Columbus. Ask Chris O'Brien. 
Chris, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. Morning to you. Yeah. Uh, Paddy's day is coming along uh, uh, pretty close now. It's only another week and a half. And we're going to be celebrating on March the 18th with the start of brunch at 11 o'clock to 2 o'clock, which includes uh, a meal for uh, call cannon, white pudding, eggs, bacon, fried tomatoes, hash browns, and toast. Irish music all day long. And then there's a dance at uh, night at 8 p.m., with uh, Irish Joe. Uh, price is $25. Not a bad deal. And we got a bucket of beer going up all day. Bolts and products for $17 a bucket. So when you're starting off your Patty's Day celebrations with uh, a brunch, it's a bit of a day boil. Pardon me? No, nothing. That doesn't matter. So do you guys do this uh, year over year to have a celebration on Patty's Day? Yes, we do. Yeah, it's one of those days. Is it as popular as it once was? Because there was a bit of a lull there. When I was, say, a young teen, it was not much to it. Then into my 30s, it was all the rage. And all of a sudden, Paddy's Day became Paddy's Week downtown. Then it had another little lull, but it seems to be back in full force. Mm. No, we're still going here. It's strong. Glad to hear it. So for $25, uh, can I show up on the day of and buy a ticket? Do I have to buy it before? What do I have to do? Well... You buy your ticket to $25, you come to your brunch, uh, like I say, from 11 to 2, and then uh, after that, uh, we'll be playing Irish music all afternoon, and it's up to you if you want to stay and listen to the music and that, or you can come and have your brunch, and then go home and wait and come back uh, at 8 o'clock for the dance. Sounds about right. I bet you a lot of people are going to stick with it the entire day. I hope so. The tickets are going. Ha, glad to hear it. What are the, who do they have to call? What's the number? 726-1452. Uh, yeah. 1452 KFC St. Patrick's Day. I'll put that in my book. Yeah. I appreciate the time this morning. Chris, good luck with it. Thank you, Paddy. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Chris uh, O'Brien, the Deputy Grand Knight of the Knights of Columbus. Let's go to line number two. Stephen, you're on the air. Hello, Paddy. How are you doing today? Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm talking about, again, I'm calling again about the vintage snowmobiles. As you know, I've been talking to you before about these machines. And Yeah, and there's been a few. Actually, I think I told you uh, the last time I called, there's a guy on the West Coast named Vince Gillis, and he's got six 1975 Skidooie Lands all restored. Nice. You can't kill those. No, you can't kill them. He's got he's got the four singles and the two twins. He's got the three hundred SS and the two fifty. I know a guy. He's not here. He's actually in Alberta. He's a friend of mine when I used to live in that province. He's got a couple of uh, these vintage snowmobiles. I'll tell you what they are. I think I can remember and get your reaction. He's got a nineteen eighty four Yamaha Phaser. Yes, I know the Phaser. Yeah. Cool. And he's got a nineteen sixty seven Ardicat uh, Panther. Oh, go away. Yeah. And a friend, and there's a guy up here in Fox Chat. He's got a 67 snow, uh, snow cruiser. Very nice. They're hard to get. You know, old stuff today is just so hard to get. 
But the guy out in West Coast, Vince Gillis, he's got a lot of nice lands restored. He restored them himself. He's got, I'd say he might have 20 machines if he got more than that out there now. Cool. Right? So when he restores them, does he sell them or does he just keep them in his collection? Keep them in the collection. Okay. And there's a uh, there's a fella up in Michigan. Uh, his name is Michael C. Allen. And he's got he's into the Mercury's, uh, the Merck's big, big, big time and he's after buying every I'd say he got every Mercury Skidoo bought in Michigan and restored right cool so I suppose he has a a fleet of snow twisters well he's got most of the black ones like the the Hurricane the SR and the Maxinet he's into the black ones more more than anyone right okay yeah, and and I'm into the Massey Ferguson Ski Whiz group, the Harley Davidson. I'm into all the groups and forms there. And I tell you, it's amazing what what you see, you know. And there's people around the world uh, doing vintage snowmobile rides right now. What are you riding? Well, my buddy's got a 75, the same Skidoo that Vince got, 75 Twin Lux. I haven't been out on in the last two years, but... I gotta get out and I gotta get out and see my buddy now soon before the snow goes and trying to get a run, you know. Yeah, it sounds great. Uh, I could use a run before the snow goes, and of course, it's pretty hard packed and not great around here at this moment in time. But uh, I always appreciate the conversation about the vintage sleds. Yeah, and I love them. I love them. I've been around them all my life. My father had a. Uh, two 1975 Mercury Hurricanes back in the day, back when I was a kid. He had one that was brand new. He bought another one that was used. So, you know, there's a lot of people doing it by Alouette, Boaski. You wouldn't be a couple of John Derrier. You wouldn't be surprised by Sarah Newfoundland, you know. Yeah, we had an Alouette when we were kids. Yeah, they're good old sleds, by. Uh, they were popular. They were a dime a dozen. Yeah, and the Harley days of my neighbor had two of them, the 340 and the 440. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, so uh, if the gentleman, I think you said his name was Vallis on the West Coast? Uh, Vince Gillis. Vince Gillis. So I just uh, interchanged the uh, letters. Okay, so Vince Gillis, maybe I'll reach out to him, see if he can send me a few pictures of his collection, just for my own yeah. interest. Yeah, because he got four, he just finished off the last two 1975, the singles that he had. And he's got the full fleet. He's the only one that I know that got the full six of the set, of the 1975 model here. He's the only one that I know that got the full fleet. Yeah, I, I see a little video and a couple of pictures of my buddy out now in Alberta with those, that Arty Cat Panther of 67. That's some machine, man, oh, man. Uh, Stephen, I'm off to the news. Really appreciate the climb this morning. Thanks a lot. All right, have a great day. You too, buddy. Bye. All the best, bye-bye. The vintage snowmobile enthusiast. Love it. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're talking windmills. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Clara, you're on the air. Yes, uh, I'm calling in about the windmills. Yes, sir. Uh, and uh, I forgot, how are you doing today, Pat? Oh, I'm doing okay, Claire. Thanks for asking. How about well, you? <laughs> very, very good. Good man. Uh, someone called in earlier. There, 
I don't know. I don't understand it. But they're putting one over on the east coast, aren't they? I, I heard where it was so around Central a little further. Well, there is a group called the Exploits Valley something or other that are proposing the very similar project to what's going on in Port of Port. Uh, wind to hydrogen, and the uh, hub would be uh, the port would be in Botwood, and they're proposing some 300 wind turbines. So, yeah, that's out there. Now, I don't know how true it is. I never heard, but. I heard the mayor and people out there are all for it. Well, the mayor of Botwood seems to be. His name is uh, Mayor Sevier, and he says that they're pretty optimistic there. When Abitibi pulled out, the population of the community is almost half what it was back in the heyday, and, of course, getting older by the day, and so they're thinking about whether or not the community is long-term viable. So they seem to be quite optimistic and hopeful that it does come to town versus what we hear mostly coming from port to port Yeah, but see... I don't know. He's a smart man as far as I'm concerned. There's very little pollution from the Very, very little from what I hear now. Like, I don't know much, really much about either, but I know a little bit more than this woman that's called me. Cause she, <laughs> she hasn't got a clue. So there's 40 clinkers and a clue. She hasn't got a clinker. Uh, fair enough. The yeah. pollution issue, I think the concern that people have is mostly about the damage to the environment. There is going to be some risk with an ammonia plant, but I mean... That's a risk that we understand. We understand what ammonia is, what it means, and how dangerous it could be. So you can only hope is even in the company's best interest to put every single measure in place to keep the ammonia risk at bare minimum or to eliminate it if at all possible. So the concern people have, I think, is basically they don't want the eyesore of windmills, and these are massive structures. I mean, compared to the windmills, say, for instance, on the southern shore here, they're more than twice the height, so they're really big things. But they oh, yeah, simply... they're huge. They you are, they're huge. Ramy, uh, excuse me, buddy. you go ahead. No, I'm, I'm just about finished my thought. You go ahead. Okay. Uh, we were over in Ramia, me and a friend of mine, and uh, they got them right in there, and they're only midgets compared to the ones that's going to be put up, you know? Yeah. But they're right in the town, eh? Ramia is not a very big place. But, uh, you know, it's, it's going to make work for people. It's going to be a good thing as far as I'm concerned, but she just don't seem to think so. Now, there was a gentleman from out there. I know several people from out there. There was one woman, uh, one fellow that told me that there's a brook out there and there's three sores running into it. Now, I'm going by what he said, but, uh, you know, that's just hearsay, you know. But, uh, you know, to be concerned about that, you know, uh, I can't understand it, tell me the truth. She says 85% are for are against it, you know? Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's wrong, too. I don't know the veracity of those numbers. Mr. Risley find, uh, portrays a very different picture than the that organized group in the Port of Port Peninsula. You know, I think you can add into the conversation. If someone comes to your door and you know that they're opposed to, you're probably just inclined to simply agree versus have some sort of argument at the door because who's got the time or the patience for that? So I don't know what the number is in support or opposed to. And, you know, whether or not there's going to be any social license based on consultations in the port of port area, I don't know how that's going to factor in either. But I've got a funny feeling that particular project is going to proceed. Uh, oh, it does go on ahead, there's no doubt about it. They blocked the, the road to them and couldn't let the, the, the workers couldn't get into the site. They had the road blocked a few times. Now, when that went to court, and they're not allowed to block it anymore, but... Then they done damage to marine equipment. Now, this woman said, no, there's no damage to it. I've seen damage to it. 
you know, I don't know what she's going on with this. Well, that blockade, of course, was in Markland, and the uh, company went to the courts to get an injunction to get them removed. And where the equipment was damaged, I have no earthly idea. Because I saw the pictures of damaged equipment. The yeah. protesters will say that when the equipment left that site, it was not damaged. So, again, I'm not out there. I have no earthly idea. But the, the equipment was absolutely damaged. We all saw the pictures. They, they were definitely damaged. And that'll show you the mentality now. Some of them. I'll tell you one thing. I know a lot of people from up there. And there's a lot of smart people. you got a handful that's not so bright, but... The majority of the people out in the mainland and out that way out in the Port of Port Minster are sensible people. I, I know a lot of them. But anyway, I don't know what's going on. I don't know. I don't understand it. But anyway, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate yours. Thanks for the call, Claire. Yeah, right on. Okay, right. bye-bye. Yeah, and you know, people come up with numbers that will be for permanent uh, high-paying jobs, but that presents a lot of assumptions with how many projects may eventually even get approved. We know the the most recent number that I saw was 31 proposals. Without question, some of those are going nowhere. You know, it's the the odds are quite clear on that front. Plus, the overall crown land made available for these proposals adds up to some 1.7 million hectares of land. That's a pretty enormous footprint. You can't foresee a future where all of that is occupied with wind turbines for the uh, the industry of wind to hydrogen, and then, of course, export for the most part. Then even if you want to expand that conversation with electric buses or electric vehicles and whatever the case may be, at this moment in time, we don't really need the power. And, you know, people are worried about the grid and the impact that the quick transformation to electrify everything is coming. But even on the global scale, and in Canada, electric vehicles are the rarity. They're not the rule. On the global front, there's only some 27 million electric vehicles in use period, which represents only about 3% of the planet's vehicle fleet. So I think the worries about how quickly things are changing or advancing are a little bit exaggerated. 3% is not really a big chunk of the vehicle fleet on the planet. And yes, not every industry is probably going to be able to avail of an electric vehicle, you know, maybe inside the world of heavy equipment and whatnot, even though there's more electrification going on in mine sites than ever before. So I think the, the panic about the ability for the grid to keep up is probably not very well founded at this moment in time. It would be nice to know more about the impact of uh, electricity generated at one wind farm or another and their opportunity uh, to sell back to the grid and what the value of that power would be because that's right back into the world of the what's in it for us, what's the actual financial impact on my pocketbook and or provincial coffers. Those are questions that don't really have a whole lot in the way of answers yet. We've seen the fiscal framework. Still a few unknowns for me there, you know, simply about uh, capital cost recovery before any royalties are going to be paid. Then the crown land lease fee and other things associated with the the amount of money that will flow to the province. Because if, say, for instance, World Energy GH2 is successful and they uh, finalize a power purchase agreement with the end customer in Germany, for instance, because that's where the MOU lies at this moment in time, they're going to be massively profitable. Because there is an appetite for the product out there, and we know it to be true. We had a caller earlier, David, who does indeed do the reading, required reading and research about the transition to hydrogen and what the appetite is and how much the market is currently satisfied versus what the opportunities that lie ahead of us are. But worries about overwhelming the grid because of all the electrification, not so sure we're there. Now, let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, plenty of time left to speak with you. Don't go away.
Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Yo, pretty good. I enjoyed your uh, little talk with the man from the Knights of Columbus about the St. Patrick's Day celebration. I was just going to mention to you before I go on. St. Patrick's Day to me represents, and you probably don't remember this, the night that St. Pat's beat St. Bonds with a ball trophy. And that was World War Three, And that was the night, that was, that was just before St. Patrick's Day. And that's all I always remember now with St. Patrick's Day, you know. Okay. Okay. Uh, what I phoned for this morning. Hello? I'm just listening, Brian. What, what I phoned for this morning. <clears throat> I was talking to a, an acquaintance of mine from Indiana yesterday. And he was telling me. That uh, and 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 Indiana is the home state of Mike Pence. That's right. Mike, he was the governor. Yeah. That's right. And uh, he said that a lot of him and his friends, he said, and a lot of people, he says, have given up on politics. He says that uh, the night before, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, or, or that present night. Donald Trump gave some sort of a sp- uh, speech to a bunch of Republicans, and he said that he, he, he basically said there'll be violence when he wins an actual election. I don't know what word to use, but he says, people down here, he says, have given up on politics. He said they got no use for it. It's that they don't care about the Republicans or the Democrats. They said that the money that these guys are using is is sinful. And he said that they don't care if Trump wins or doesn't win. But he says what he pities is the countries around the world who had to deal with this government, uh, with Trump, that uh, you, know, you never know what he's going to do. But that's what he was saying. Oh, another point he made out, made out, he says, up in Canada, he said, do you think that uh, the uh, conservative party up there, once they take over the government from the Chinese and Trudeau, will will this conservative government pass a, a, a bill uh, prohibiting abortion like they're doing in the United States. I said, I don't know. No, I mean, that that conversation gets whipped up every time there's a, a need for some party to change the channel on the conversation. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's pretty settled in this country. And yes, there have been people uh, on the, in the Conservative Party who have voiced their concerns, but nothing has changed. You know, I, I, that that conversation is a, a distraction more often than not. Yeah. And I, I admit to, I pay absolutely no attention to... Uh, the former president and you know I did see some clips on my social media feed about some of the comments he was making things like you know he'll bring an end to the war in Ukraine very easily you know you know 
all this stuff about only he can achieve one thing or another is all just so silly. It's remarkable that people fall for it because at one hand they're complaining about total totalitarianism and people being dictators, and yet they're willing to support someone who says, I'm the only one who can do this, and saying that everything's so simple and uh, I can solve all ills in one fell swoop when he had four years to do it and, and he achieved none of it. So uh, I just find it weird more than, more than anything else. The weird thing is that they're going to elect him again. And that that uh, that country, which was uh, remember Ronald Reagan uh, giving a speech called the United States uh, a shining city on a hill, it ain't going to be a shining city on the hill anymore. I think we're seeing if Trump wins, I think we're seeing the end of democracy down in the United States. I don't know. I don't know, and nor do I know if that's even going to happen. But there's a lot of strange things that happen in the United States. My money, and I'm not for him, my money is on Trump. Anyway, so thanks for, thanks for letting me come on and say, say my piece. No problem. I appreciate Good the time. Yeah. Take care. Yeah. Okay, bye, Brian. Yeah, American politics is extremely difficult to to watch or to listen to. There is certainly a nature of tribalism in, in Canadian politics, there's no doubt, but that's all it is in the United States. It's really wild to watch. Let's go to line number one. Jackson, you're on the air. Hello, how are you? Doing great. How about you? Very good, thank you. Good. It's getting warmer here, so it's not, not the end of the world. Yeah, we're actually creeping into the positive temperatures sometime today. I heard plus two. Oh, boy. Yeah, you can really feel it when you've been sleeping in minus 10. Oh, absolutely. I, I welcome a little warm-up. Yeah, totally. So let's talk about the Terry Fox tribute run. Of course. What's coming up? Give us whatever information you can share about it. Okay, so right now I just pulled into uh, Holyrood. Is that is that how you say that? That's right, Holyrood, yeah. Holyrood, and uh, currently making my way up now to Brigus Junction. Um, it's only day two, so I'm just getting started here, but I'm hoping to get about 60-plus kilometers a day and make my way through the island in about 14 to 15 days here. So why are you doing this? So that's a, that's a great question. I guess a little bit of a long answer would be that um, I worked in elder care for about 10 years and constantly was giving giving my whole life to other people. And so this is kind of a, a little way to uh, take back for myself, but also to uh, give on a, on a larger scale since I'm doing this run to raise money for cancer research as well. So a bit for me, but then also at the end of the day, um, a life of service is a life worth living, so that's what I'm doing out here, trying to raise money and help Terry accomplish his dream of never having anyone else have cancer. The last time Canadians were polled about who was the greatest Canadian of all time, Terry Fox came out on top, uh, oh, which yeah. is no surprise. And his his run, of course, ended around Thunder Bay, if I remember the logistics uh, correctly. So there's been lots of effort and monies raised through Terry Fox's name, the foundation, and the Terry Fox run over the years. Some people will hold all of these types of fundraising uh, efforts with some layer of suspicion, but when people are doing it for all the right reasons, like it sounds you are, Jackson, I think it's brilliant. So uh, paint us a picture of what a normal day in this run looks like, and then most importantly, a recovery and a normal night. Sorry, sorry, sorry. A lot of cars driving by. Um, you say you wanted me to send you a picture? No, no, no. I say paint us a picture here while we have you live on the radio about what an average day running looks like for you. And then most importantly, when you're doing this day after day, what a normal night of recovery looks like for you. All right. So an average day, I guess, 
So today I got up around 5.50. Um, I'm doing stealth camping, so that so I had to get up early so I didn't get trespassed anywhere, of course. It's tough to find a place to stay every night. So I got up around 5.50, gathered, gathered my life a bit, and then just started hitting the road. So I'm doing a bit of uh, jogging and walking, mixing it up both because these hills are not an easy feat, especially when you're pushing a, a 50-pound stroller with every with all your gear in it. Since I am doing this solo. And then, uh, you know, you walk and run for about 10 to 12 hours. Whenever you see a gas station or a restaurant, maybe pop in for some a water refill and maybe a bite to eat. Although I do have about six days worth of, of uh, nutrition in my stroller here. But... Yeah, it's just nice to stay popped up. And then once it gets dark out, uh, find a spot that that won't be weird or creepy that I pitch my tent. And then just try and recoup as much as I can, probably eat one more meal. And then, yeah, stretch in my tent and uh, massage my muscles. And then it's lights out and then right back at it the next day. You know, on days like today where inevitably you're going to get wet, how do you get dry and stay warm? Because the temperatures still drop pretty cool in the evening and the night. Yeah, yeah. So at night it dropped down probably last night to like minus 15. So it was a bit of a chillier night. But, uh, you know, I just double layered up, had a, had a little blanket in my sleeping bag. And I'm not made of, I'm not made of sugar, so I'm not going to melt. So, yeah, so far, so good. Listen, uh, good on you for taking this on and an opportunity to give back. Uh, be safe, stay warm, and thanks for the time this morning, Jackson. Give us a call when you've finished your, your island-wide run. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate you letting me share my story. And uh, I just want to say all of this is because of Terry Fox, the greatest hero in all of Canada, and he will be for the rest of time. So long live Terry Fox. Thanks a lot, uh, Jackson. Stay in touch. Yeah, take care. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, it's a tricky time of year to be taking on that type of run, especially when you're trying to not only recover physically after a long day in the elements with whatever kind of kilometers you put on your legs and getting warmed up as opposed to being in a, a heated home where you can absolutely and obviously you find an opportunity to warm up. Pitch tent side of the road, not as easy. All right, final check on the Twitter box for the morning. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. But we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.